You know, the funny thing is, like, when you when you kind of go on stage, well, it always was, like, for me, you know, when you went on stage, you could s suddenly become somebody else, you know. I was always a very sh shy person, you know. When I was young, I was really quite shy, you know, and uh, a very nervous sort of kid. But when you get a guitar in your hand or you're playing, somehow you're this other person. All that seems to leave you somehow. And you, you can detach yourself and become this other person. And the same thing I goes, you know, the same thing goes if, if you dress up or put makeup on. You can kind of detach yourself somewhat and become this other person. Welcome to another episode of Pod Like a Hole, a space podity. By the way, you just heard friend of the show, Mick Ronson. Tonight we will be discussing two albums. Ziggy Stardust, the, um, the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust by David Bowie, as well as a brief discussion on Lou Reed's Transformer. I am one of your hosts, Stephen Chambers. I am here with my co-host, Eric Anderson. Hey, yep, we're here. Barely got barely got uh got here in one piece, but we're here. Good. Glad you made it. Uh Eric, how how you been since we last talked? Have you seen Mark recently? Um I I, I got word from the hospital that they, they can't find him. His his uh room was was empty. And there was a there was a rope of sheets tied together hanging out his window. Oh no! So so as we su- suspected, he went um, one flew over the cuckoo's nest style, and he hopped out the window. Yeah, I, that that must mean he must be feeling better if he's ready to leave after that tin machine episode that put him there and and, and, and with a broken mind. Well, uh, Eric, I had to I had to keep this in the down low because the only way to pull it off was to keep you out of it. I um I, I actually what was the name of that character in one flew there was there was Jack Nicholson. And then there was his roommate, who was the Native American fellow, right? Right. Okay, well, I'd, in this case, I was the Native American fellow, and I busted him loose. I had to get him out of there. Uh, the, he's sitting right next to me. Mark, introduce yourself. Hello. I am back and uh, looking forward to all the media monkeys and the junket junkies in this plastic pantomime. I'm, I'm excited to get out of that uh, nurse ratchet type situation that Tin Machine put me into. Um, thank you for not smothering me to death and, and breaking me out, Stephen. I appreciate it. Well, it's a big step that, you know, you were once you were able to say the words Tin Machine without uh, doubling over in fits of laughter, I knew that we were headed on the right track. Right. I mean, so we should credit uh, the good doctor's work on that one, uh, really really helping you snap out of it. Oh, no, I'm not, I'm not taking credit for the good doctor's work, but <laughs> they, had, they had all this paperwork to get him out of there. Honestly... We didn't need to break out the window. We could have just left out the front door, but there was a lot of paperwork involved, and frankly, I didn't have the patience for it. Right. So. That sounds like a bottle rocket type situation. But yeah. <laughs> so here we are. Here we are again. The band is back together. A tin machine tried to break us, but it couldn't. And now we're going to discuss two very good records tonight, and I am looking forward to it. Uh, yes. So, yes. Thank you, Stephen, for that warm welcome. Uh, I have yet to dive into your 
uh, glam rock special, your B side. Well, they don't they don't let you. They weren't listening. They were not letting you listen to anything in there. They took yeah. all my my electronics away. Uh, I just kept muttering David Bowie, Legacy Killing, and uh, they were like, "We gotta just put him <laughs> in some sort of like quarantine, quarantine." It was like a Howard Hughes Aviator situation. But it's oh. glad to be back. Glad oh, to be man. back. Oh man. Well, is there any uh, Bowie bulletins or Nine Inch News? Uh, there's a few things that have come across the wire since uh, we we had to spring Mark out of there. Um, did you guys see? That they they released a photo of the young man playing David Bowie in that that film. I had no idea that this thing was actually happening. I I heard like there was some rumblings because of all of the uh, the success of Bohemian Rhapsody and Rocket Man. So Ugh, this thing yeah. is actually happening, huh? What's the name of this movie? Oh, it's called. Uh, oh, hold on one second. I want, it's called Stardust. So I, I, I got a problem. I, I mean, even like Duncan Jones says, uh, the family didn't give rights to any of his songs for this movie. So have fun watching it without any Bowie music in it. Um, it, it does not have the family's blessing at all. Really? Yeah. Duncan Jones is apparently like, I, he went on this whole Twitter thing. I think Steve saw it too, where he was like, yeah, this movie doesn't have our blessing. It's like, it, there's not going to be really Bowie music in it. If somebody wants to make a really good Bowie movie, it wouldn't be a biopic. It would be like a psychedelic I mean, thing. And he started naming like directors he wanted to work on it. And he said, I would give the, all the songs for that. So We already made Velvet Goldmine, though. Like, what's the point? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's not even from a very exciting era. It's from his, uh, you know, his young, like, uh, art community troubadour era. So, no, we'll, we'll, actually, I'll bring that up in a second. Yes, that era. And we'll talk about Velvet Goldmine a little later. Yeah, uh, Duncan Jones is not against the idea of a movie. He's just against the idea of this one and who's involved. A young actor named Johnny Flynn playing David Bowie. Uh, Mark Maron's in it, uh, or will be in it. I'll give him that much. But, uh, yeah, this is not not looking too good, folks. Um, is it titled Joker? I, I... <laughs> that clearly is different. Did you, guys, did you guys watch that Joker trailer, that new one? Yeah. 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 What do you, what, we'll what do you I mean, think? honestly, yeah, no, I, I want to watch it. It's not going to be in theaters. So I'm going to be watching it. But apparently at uh, Cannes Film Festival, that got an eight-minute standing ovation. Wow. Uh, but there has been a lot of think pieces on that movie, um, saying it's kind of problematic in the sense of it's celebrating the incel kind of uh, community. Um, that a movie like this doesn't really need to be celebrated where... You know, some white guy who just can't get a girl and, you know, things just don't work out for him. And uh, then he resorts to, you know, well, turning is, into a violent character. Is that what it's about or is that what the incels are hoping it's about? Um, well, that's what some of the critics have written oh, okay. about. Okay. And so, but then other people have said it's, uh, it's you know, it's a great piece of work. Um, mm. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's directed by the guy that directed The Hangover, so I don't know. Yeah, but and, and yes. uh, Road Trip, starring yeah. Tom yeah. Green. <laughs> Did either one of you ever watch that movie, um, The King of Comedy, from Martin Scorsese? Oh, it's on my list. No, I've not seen it yet. I know what it's about. I know what it's about. It is a blind spot for me, and I do know that it informs this film. I mean, it certainly does. I mean, from the trailer, I could I haven't seen it, but I just get that that vibe. I mean, Robert De Niro is in obviously both of them. 
Um, but uh, it'll be interesting, you know. I I'll reserve judgment until I see this damn thing. Yeah. Same here. In Joaquin Phoenix, I usually trust. It'll be at, at the same time. I don't know if I want to. You know, I, I have the fear that it'll spin us off into an apocalypse of gritty and adult con uh, comic book movies. And God knows I don't have the patience for that, but we'll see. Yeah. But it does have friend of the show, uh, Mark Marin in it. Who's also, uh, I just got done watching in uh, season three of glow and I'll give, I'll give anything a chance that he's, he touches because he's a cranky old man. And he speaks to me. And so the next thing that yeah, they release more info on that conversation piece box set. Mm. And that actually, yeah, that's from the art school to space oddity times and that's coming out in uh, november 15th and it's oh, a, it's a big old box it's a big old box set like yeah. it's a it's got a book it's got a, a whole bunch of paraphernalia so interesting because uh, it is missing there i'm sorry not it's missing but uh the five years box set is great and we used a lot of that when we talked about that era but it is missing quite a bit so this must fill in the gaps yeah, I know it has the spine through a keyhole and the, the Clareville Grove demos and the Mercury demos and a whole bunch of stuff I will probably never listen to, but <laughs> it's there if you want it. Yep. And also uh, online, I posted this at the Facebook site. They uh, they posted some pages from that Mike Allred uh, graphic novel. Oh, it looks gorgeous. It looks gorgeous. It looks, I mean, Mike, Mike Allred is uh, is one of my favorites. Uh, it, it, looks, it looks beautiful. Yeah, no, that, that that looks great, and that's that's coming out uh, before the end of the year. It's going to be 144 pages, and it looks like it's it, it's going to cover. It, it'll the Ziggy Stardust stuff, as we'll speak about tonight, is the most visually appealing, but of course it's going to go beyond that, from what I can tell. Right. So that'll be fun. Cool. And the one last bit of Nine Inch news is uh, they finally gave a release date for the Watchmen uh, TV show. Hallelujah. 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 Yep. I gotta say those those trailers are are, are it looks it looks like engrossing TV to me. It might be a little heavy handed, but it looks it looks it looks like a lot of fun. So I'll, I'll definitely be watching that. Oh, and don't yeah, forget, uh, uh, yeah, Trent's also doing a Pixar movie, which is wild. When yeah, I read that, that headline, it's just. I mean, I'm so, glad that he's really expanding himself into uh, not just like kind of dark, gritty movies. Uh, I mean, the man has kids, and I'm sure I think Atticus does as well. But I'm sure it's not going to be like it's just it's different for him, right? I yeah, mean, it's, it's just, called uh, it's called Soul, and it's about like I think a jazz musician dies, and is it's about like it's just kind of like a maybe a take on afterlife, but it's got to be different than the. Um, yeah. The Day of the Dead. I don't picture him yeah. covering like you know any Randy Newman style songs, but no, uh, it'll probably just all be instrumental. There'll probably be no vocals. But well, I don't I'll, know if you guys you never know. Back when we talked about uh, mid '90s, I said there was some really pretty piano work on it. Yeah. Like some yeah. of the most cinematic prettiest for lack of a better term i could see some of that transitioning into the pixar stuff so yeah Agreed. yeah and that uh, to get that uh, uh watchman comes out in october and i'm looking forward to it it takes place 34 years after the comic book or the movie and uh yeah atticus and resner are doing the music 
Did either one of you, because I know uh, both of you have a little more of a big comic book pedigree than I do, I understand that they did relaunch Watchmen without Alan Moore's involvement. Um, you, any anything pulled from this, or is just Damon? Oh, you're talking about just, the beef. Uh, no, you're Eric, talking about Eric, Watchmen. Eric, I'll uh, oh, Eric, I'll start. Okay. Eric, I'll start, and then you mm-hmm. can take over my yeah, leftovers. Yeah. You, got. you got it. So there's a few things they did. Um, they did do before Watchmen without Alan Moore, and it was is essentially what is in the name. It was a bunch of prequel series is that took place before Watchmen. They were milking the cow for all they were worth. But I got to say, the majority of them, uh, they got some decent writers and they got some decent artists, and they're worth checking out. Yes, the original uh, creators weren't involved. You know, what are you going to do? I actually, I, I have to take that back. I believe Dave Gibbons did give his approval to it. But I don't think Dave Gibbons gave his approval to what came years later, which was something called Doomsday, I believe. <laughs> it's still going which, on. The final issue hasn't dropped yet. It's, okay. still, it's still going. And that, and that was integrating the Watchmen characters into the DC Comics uh, proper. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. Lawrence? Am I right? You got any more so, on that? Yeah, yeah. So I actually, I actually like it pretty well. Jeff Johns is a hit and miss writer for me, but he's doing his best, uh, Alan Moore, um, and uh, it's it basically is. It, actually, what happened was way back in like five years ago, they did a they did a rebirth thing for DC where they kind of they didn't reboot it, but they just kind of set a new status quo, and Batman finds a. Uh, smiley face button in the bat cave with a blood drip on it and it starts this mystery that slowly unravels over like little mini series here and there and then it and then it kind of it kind of expands out in this uh, doomsday clock where it's two different universes some of the DC characters go over to the Watchmen universe some of the Watchmen characters come over to the DC universe there's a little something with Legion of Superheroes in there and it's uh, and there's a lot with Dr. Manhattan and he's just kind of playing puppet master with the two universes and uh it's not supposed to be folding them into the same universe, but I could see them maybe doing that in the final, in the final issue, which I hope they don't do. But anyways, just kind of having fun seeing the characters meet each other. That's where it is right now, at least. I get it. Yeah. So, I get it. Uh, to, to, if anybody's still awake out there, ah. um, between those two things, I think if you've read the Watchmen graphic novel, if you want to pick up some of those before Watchmen graphic novels, they're very self-contained. But if you try to pick up this Doomsday thing, you'll be lost. That's that's my opinion. Um, but there you go. That's that's the world after Watchmen. There you go. I see. So um, that's you know, uh, this is probably just going to be almost like a TV adaptation, similar to what like Preacher's done on their series. Like obviously, it takes a lot of elements, um, but it sounds like this show is going to be just like a straight sequel to the source material then yeah uh, yeah okay. it seems like it yeah yeah okay so it's yeah it's a few years later i was gonna say yeah there's like rorschach there's like a rorschach gang 
and all that. So yeah. Yeah. And, and Jeremy Irons is playing an old version of Ozymandias. So. Well, all that being said, that's, that's 34 years after Watchmen. But what was, um, what year did I, the 86? Is that when Watchmen came out? Yeah. 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 So then we go back a decade, four more years. 14 years. 14 years before that, what was going on in the world of 1972? It, it was a different world. Gentlemen, we can't even imagine what the world was like back then. We can't. Well, I don't know. Maybe Mark can if he's listening to enough U2 because Bloody Sunday happened on January 30th, kicking off the year where uh, now I'm going to stop sounding so cheerful. British troops shot unarmed protesters in Northern Ireland, killing 13 civilians. That was a big news. Um, Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger were Time Magazine's Men of the Year. Dude, Henry Kissinger is still alive. He is. He is still alive. He is still alive. Actually, Lennox came up to me and he said, he said, uh, Dad, check this out. There was a, f- there was a funeral at the turn of the century, or no, no, at the, at the 1800s, where a Civil War soldier w- attended a Revolutionary War soldier's funeral. And then Henry Kissinger attended the funeral of a Civil War soldier. And he's still alive. You can connect all the way back to the Revolutionary War with three people. I don't know if that's true or not, but he told me that. Well, I, I can tell you this much. I don't think Kissinger has attended a funeral of everyone in every war that's been since he uh, was in some kind of office because there's, there's not enough time and day no. for, for that. No. Um, and that was also the same year that the Watergate Hotel was broken into. So Richard Nixon started the uh, started the year on top of the world and would uh, end it with holding two peace signs out of an airplane flying away in shame. The way the world works now... If Watergate would have happened two weeks ago, we would have forgotten about it last week. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. Such a, yeah, such a like a minor. Oh, and not even a scan. Not even the stuff that should be scandals or not. I guess is what I'm saying. Say the heartthrobs of the of the era, but um, no males, of course. This list is all is very sexist. But we have Adrian Barbeau, Carol Burnett. Uh, we have Linda Carter, Pam Greer. Ah, yes, Pam Greer. Pam Greer, who was in Jackie Brown. Yep, all-timer. Um, some of the guys of that era, I mean, must be like Burt Reynolds, I, I would have to assume. Burt Reynolds was a hunk back in the 70s. Clint Eastwood, maybe. I don't know if he was ever considered a hunk, but those, that was definitely his heyday. Definitely, definitely. What about a... What about... Who was a... a Gardner? Uh, oh, James Gardner. Yeah. James Garner. Yeah. I think he was kind of a hunk. Yeah, I think, a, I think you're right. Kind of way. I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. That's fair enough. I mean, he's the kind of guy I would have been attracted to. But, uh, right. You no, know, I, I, I like my beat up detectives. It's true. That's my, that's my kind of man. Yeah. <laughs> what about uh, Telly Savalas? That sounds right. Um, Kojak. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we've got the um, TV shows of the year. We had um, All in the Family, Sanford and Son, Hawaii Five O, and then a couple shows called Maud and Bridget Loves Bernie that I've never heard of before. You've never heard of Maud before? No, not Bridget Loves Bernie. Okay, yeah. I've never heard of that one either. I don't know if I've heard of Maud, but 
I definitely... How have you not heard of Maude before? De what is oh, wrong? come on. That's, uh, what's her name from the Golden Girls? Shit, uh, didn't someone just die from Maude? No, you're thinking of Valerie Harper, and she was on uh, the Mary Tyler Moore show. Okay, yeah, you're right. But yeah, no, Maude was, uh, Maude was Rose. It was Rose. No, it was uh, Dorothy. God, my God, what's her name? It's all of a sudden just escaping me. Holy shit. Beatrice Arthur. Who is Beatrice? There you go. Yeah. I thought that was Rose. No, Rose was Betty White. Are you sure? 100%. All right. Well, I'll get my life savings. L listen to Mark's convention. Listen to Mark's convention. Let me see if I can get that uh, $122 out of Mark. Um, <laughs> let's see here. I'm going on the internet. And plot. Cast. All right, all right. Yeah, Mod was Dorothy. You got me there, sir. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that that was some fun gambling uh, in uh, in real time. Steve now owes Mark 122 dollars as he just promised. I didn't offer nothing. No, he bet his life savings. I didn't. I didn't say anything about my <laughs> my 72 dollars. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, uh, hit songs of the time. We have Don McLean's American Pie. Al Gore. Oh, that's a terrible song. Yes. That's all, no, let's just, let's just, come on, guys. <laughs> yeah. That song is just, it's, it's so long. It's awful. It's so bad. It's awful. And it's like, I love my stepdad, but American Pie is the quintessential song that I think of when I just think of my stepdad rocking out. Just, I, I imagine wild. him pulling up to a levee and listening to that whole damn song. Oh. Oh. Very long. Uh, Al Green, let's stay together. Uh, Nilsson, without you. Many good records came out that year. Yeah. We're just that's that's what the the pop. Uh, Neil Young, Heart of Gold, was that year. It's a great song. I uh, I come from a Neil Young household. My uh, my mom's a massive fan. I've probably seen him twice in concert. It's pretty good. And I do appreciate what he brought. I mean, I think critics have you know talk about his voice or whatever. It's fine, but he's a solid songwriter. Um, and I think there's some Neil Young, there's a Neil Young uh, kind of uh, parody song, according to Bowie, on, on that we'll be discussing tonight. So I guess that makes sense. So really? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll bring it back up when we get to it. Uh, movies. Uh, we got Cabaret. You got. Have you guys ever seen that movie? I have not. I have seen it. That's all I need to say about that <laughs> one. Uh, speaking of Burt Reynolds, we got Deliverance. Does that have a lot? The Liza Minnelli in it? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's it's just not my cup of tea. I mean, it's not a bad movie. I'm just not a fan of that style of music. And I know it was really about, like, kind of Berlin. But, it, I mean, it, it's a Broadway show that was presented for, for film. And, you know, it's just not my thing. So, moving on. That Cats trailer, by the way, looks like the stuff of nightmares. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's good. That's good. Oh, that might be a eat two gummies and watch it kind of night, Mark. <laughs> yeah. You'll have to paint me off the ceiling. After Eric, the goal is to keep Mark out of the asylum. That might not be the last time Liza Minnelli is brought up tonight, though. When we discuss Transformer. I might oh, have boy. To say. Yeah, no, that's uh, no. There definitely is stuff in, in there. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're good. Uh, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. I mean, after the first one, I don't really know the difference between the Planet of the Apes films until the the reboots. But uh, I've never seen the original, if you can believe it. 
Hmm. I've seen the trailer. I know what it's about, obviously, but I've seen the reboot. I've seen the Tim Burton remake, um, but none of the originals with, like, uh, was it Roddy McDowell? Charlton Heston. Char Charlton, Charlton Heston. Heston was, I think, just in the first one, though. I don't think he was in... I don't think he was in the, any of the subsequent ones. Oh, was he? Okay. Yeah. You're probably hey, so right. yeah. I'm gonna... Two things. Um, I am a huge fan. In this home, we subscribe to that remake trilogy. They're great. Not... They're a lot of fun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, they're great. They're great. All three of them. And also, because the, the music suggestions Eric made were so banal, I was dicking around the internet while you've been talking. And... Um, did you guys know that Led Zeppelin 4 came out in 1971? No. I, I, I just for some reason thought that that would have been like mid-70s. So they put out all four of those classic great albums by 1971. That blows my mind. Yeah. That was the last year. Uh, so on other related news, that was L the year L.A. Woman was also released. And then pretty much Jim died right after that. And that was it for The Doors. So they did all their output from like 67 to 71. Yeah. I, I would say Jim Morrison's uh, untimely demise definitely probably informed this album a bit too. I, I was going to say, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It will not be the last time we bring up classic rock albums when we talk about Ziggy Stardust. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're good. Uh, so The Godfather dropped this year, obviously. Perfect film. Uh, Never heard movie of it. is so good. In my research, <laughs> it is, it's great. And in my research, I uh, i found that apparently the movie The Godfather inspired Ronnie Dangerfield to come up with uh, No Respect because the whole movie talks about respect. And then he was just like, hey, uh, what if a, what about a guy doesn't get any respect? That's a joke. <laughs> and <laughs> and his career was launched out of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Have we uh, ever taken the time <laughs> on the podcast, Eric, to discuss your uh, hat trick of Dangerfield? <laughs> No, I am quite proud of it, though. I'm quite proud. I, I own Rap and Rodney on three different mediums. I own the complete album. It's a comedy album that just has his Rap and Rodney rap song on it. I own the seven-inch single of Rap and Rodney, and I own the cassette single of Rap and Rodney. You're welcome. And so, listeners, if you're out there asking yourselves, Rap and Rodney, what the hell is that? Well, let's hear a clip. I tell you, I'm all right now, but last week I was in rough shape. I don't get a break with nothing. I played hide and seek when I was three. No respect, no respect. Why they wouldn't even look for me? No respect, no respect. I was an ugly kid, I never had fun. No respect, no respect. They took me to a dog show and I won. No you went to school, you started no a family, respect. you, uh, I was born, you, I you no finally story. got a job that you love, or at least you are proud of. Uh, but I still think that the Rap and Rodney hat trick is your greatest accomplishment. <laughs> I appreciate that. I so do I actually. So do I. So do I. Uh, other big films um, this year was Solaris, uh, which is the original one. I believe was the Russian sci-fi film. Yeah, I gotta say, there's a movie coming out soon that uh, has Brad Pitt in it, looking for Tommy Lee Jones as his dad in space, and it's giving me Solaris vibes, and I'm okay with that. Sign me up. Sign it's me called, up. Uh, called, it's called Astra. Nice. Uh, Last Tango in Paris. Never seen that one. Got... Yeah, I haven't either. That's, a, that's, that's, that's Brando as well, that right? That's Brando, Brando. Yeah. That is Brando. Brando, yeah. and a, if I understand correctly, a stick of butter. I'm sure that, yeah. <laughs> uh, definitely involved. Uh, 
Uh, deliverance. Um, we've uh, we've already told our deliverance anecdote in this show. Let's move on. We have. Yep. Uh, oh, and then uh, one that I actually really like: uh, Silent Running with Bruce Dern. That reminds me, dear listeners. Last week on the WTF podcast with Mark Marin, and no, he is not a sponsor of the show. He had Bruce Dern on for discussion, and it was wonderful. Anyone that loves stories of the 60s and the 70s until today, uh, movie making, should check it out. Bruce Dern is one of the good ones. Uh, in a space station with robots. Have you guys seen that one? No. Oh, that one is a classic. It's inspired a lot of movies like uh, Star Wars credited as a inspiration, um, at least with the with how they do the droids. Obviously, Mystery Science Theater does. Yeah. And it's um, just a guy that's like a, a he might be like a botanist or something. He's up in space and he's kind of seeing how like plants uh, and life kind of uh, adapts to space. He's like in a space station and he's just got nothing but droids to talk to and things kind of spiral from there. Um I recommend it highly. It's a it's a good one. Silent yeah, if you like if you like your, I mean, back, if you like your Solaris's, if you like your two thousand and ones, it's got that quiet nineteen uh, seventies sci fi vibe to it. You're a what is yeah. it? T H X. What is it, Mark? Eleven thirty eight. Yeah. So that barrels us right through seventy two. Oh my good god! This was nineteen seventy two. Is also the year that uh, uh, the Olympic Games were held in Munich. Um, if you haven't seen the film Munich, starring Eric Bana, directed by Steven Spielberg, uh, you will see that this was also a pretty eventful Olympic Games, where 11 Israeli Olympic team members were taken hostage and multer, uh, murdered by an Arab terrorist cell called Black September. Um, and uh, the film Munich really goes into uh, how the Israelis responded to that. Um, I feel like that's the last Spielberg movie that kicked me right in the cock. Like, definitely the only one from the aughts. Correct me if I'm missing something. Mm, yep. That one, that one is like top notch. It's very good. I can't. I mean, uh, catch me if you can. I'm trying to think of which other one. You know the catch me if you can guy. I'd give you. I'd give you that one. I give you that one as well. It doesn't have the scope of uh, of Munich, but yeah. I'll give you that. Those are the two. I guess I can't think of another one from the last 20 years. I think War of the Worlds is underappreciated, but it's not exactly a masterpiece. No. I, d- I would agree with you. I do think it's a pretty good one. You know, my Tom Cruise love. And, well, yeah. yeah. And, Link- and Lincoln deserves a, a pat on the back for it's sure. pretty good. But, yeah. I mean, Daniel yeah. Day-Lewis's uh, uh, portrayal is out of, the, out, of this, out of the world, man. It's very good. But... Ready Player One didn't quite do it for me. I thought it was entertaining, but it was really just too much for me. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I didn't make time for Ready Player. I, I read the book, and by the time I got done with the book, which I did enjoy, I was so exhausted with all of the the whole point of it is references. It's references. Yeah. The, the it's girl talk. The movie. Not, I did not need to see a movie of just references. Yeah. So. All right, Stephen, you got some. Oh yeah, you know, I, I had an inkling. You know, the, I, I have my hat with the dynasty on it. This was the first year of the nineteen eighty or the nineteen seventies Oakland Athletics uh, trilogy of winning championships. Yep. So yep. they 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 pulled that off, and uh, the over in the basketball world, the way the Lakers beat the Knicks for for the finals, and over in the football world. 
the Dallas Cowboys beat the Miami Dolphins. There you go. I'm breezing through that because we have a lot to talk about tonight, but I do want to mention, I do want to mention two things. Uh, the Oakland Athletics of 2019 are still in the wild card playoff hunt. And also, uh, I don't, you guys don't follow football much, but I find this very entertaining. Did either of you hear of this, all of this, uh, the, the, and, and Antonio Antonio Brown saga, I believe his name uh, is. No, no, this is this is news. Okay, um, yeah. So he Antonio Brown was a he's a receiver that the the Raiders picked up, and they picked him up from the Steelers. The Steelers traded him to the Raiders for not much, and. Uh, things soured really quickly. The Raiders are a terribly run franchise. Things got really bad. And it basically became one of those situations where the guy became such a pain in the ass that he basically, he made the team so miserable that they cut him. They, they cut this, this generational talent. And uh, the day he was cut, the, uh, the Patriots picked him up on a smaller contract. The reason I bring all this up is I find it humorous because the Steelers, who initially traded him to the Raiders, they traded him to the Raiders over a year ago or so because they didn't want him to go to the Patriots. And so they traded him to the Raiders. He made things terrible between him and the Raiders, and the Raiders cut him, and then the Patriots end up picking him up anyways. So the exact thing that the Pittsburgh Steelers tried to avoid actually happened over a year later, and I just think that it's hilarious. That is, yeah... I mean, that happens all the time in sports. You know, all these little behind backroom chess moves that typically blow up in other franchises' faces. Uh, oh, yeah, this, exactly. This all, game uh, of fifth dimensional yeah. chess totally, yeah. <laughs> totally bit him in the, uh, the ass. So. That's wild. There you go. <laughs> Anyhow, Anyhow, that's it. So so what was – so all that aside, I'm sure, I'm sure some rando is going to complain about this on a Facebook post somewhere. Uh, we haven't even started talking about the album yet. But, you know – <laughs> that's that's why you guys came here, Eric. What was David Bowie doing in 1972? I believe so. This this is the era of David Bowie. He just got done with what was the last album, Hunky Dory. Yes. And, um, uh, actually, he was recording this before and after Hunky Dory. Okay, I can so, see that. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about some of the B sides we discussed. And he was part of one thing we haven't touched on much because on the show we've talked about the oldest thing we've talked about was Space Oddity, I believe. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then the most recent thing after this we talk about is Diamond Dogs. Right. So we don't discuss much about this era during the um, the main man, uh, the um, management group, the main man. Tony Ian Hunter. Uh, the that he was the guy who was sort of was almost kind of like brainwashing you to say, you're a star. You're a star. Behave yeah. like a star. Even though you're an adult, behave like a star. You know, that, that kind of thing. Was that right? Was he very much into... Oh, well, you had meetings once a week, and he sat you around. He, was, he would try and he was very much a manager. I mean, he, his, his idol was Tom Parker. You know, he did it the old-fashioned way. Plus, he'd have, he'd have these meetings, and, it, and like he hated me talking on stage because he wanted to give me that Bowie kind of. You know, he said every time you open your mouth, it drives me crazy. I wish you would not do this because you know, I'm a joke on. I mean, I'm not David. You know what I mean? I'm eager. But at the time I was going for it because I thought well, he was taking so much of an interest, you know. And he actually got between me and a guy was going to stab me one night in, um, I forget where it was, somewhere in America. 
and I was freaking out. Everything had been wrong, you know, uh, backstage and all the rest of it. And I didn't realise who I was talking to, you know. And all of a sudden, the guy pulled a knife, and it was Tony got in the way. Wow. He had this big fur coat on. I figured, well, he's all right. <laughs> a bit further to go before it actually touches him, you know. But I would add to that list Freddy Fingersley, who was this guy who plays piano and all the rest of it. And Fred let me play with him, and it was the first time I got to go to Hamburg and and actually think maybe maybe I could do this instead of working in factories. You know. But the songwriting came first, didn't it? Really? No, no. no. Show off. Show off. <laughs> Ladies came first. <laughs> no, when I joined Mott, they they had two writers. They had Mick Ralphs and they had the bass player Pete Watts. They were the two writers. Right. And Pete was great because when I started writing, I started almost immediately at the rehearsals. And Pete said, "Oh, you're better than me. I'm not going to bother." And that's how it came about. But you've been working as a song as a staff writer for Francis Day and Hunter. Yeah, you? but like two songs a year. You know, Ko Dwyer kept me on, and it was like embarrassing. You know. And that was his manager was a guy named Tony DeFreeze, who we're not going to go way in depth about tonight because he. Like from 1968, 69-ish to the mid-70s, maybe later, he had a hand in a lot of stuff. If I, I, I'm i willing to bet he had a hand up to station to station. I'm not sure. But he uh, he was he, he was a manager of uh, Iggy Pop, Mick Ronson, Mott the Hoople, who we'll bring up later, uh, Dana Gillespie, John Cougar Mellencamp, and more. And anyhow, the reason I bring him up is because definitely a lot of the personalities mingling during the Ziggy Stardust and Glam era or managed by this guy. So that is a little bit of uh, food for thought as we discuss how this album was recorded. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, sometime uh, before um, or during the hunky, yeah, the hunky dory um, sessions, he started kicking around the idea of doing a fake rock star he wanted to do a, a concept album about a fake rock star and um you know some of the songs that would end up on the album that he was doing around the hunky dory times um weren't necessarily tied to that idea yet but then he started a little project and I, maybe he was doing this it, the reasons why he did this are kind of unclear but he he started a project called albert corns uh which was essentially him and the spiders from mars but um, he told everybody, oh, we're just doing demo songs for my friend, um, a, a fashion designer. A fashion designer wants me to make some songs for um, for his project. And the guy's name was, uh, uh, his name was what, Federico Beretti. That's right. Yeah, was the, uh, and so he told people that he was making these songs for a music project that Beretti was doing. Um, and in all of the promo pictures, it was, it was Beretti as the lead singer and then other people but it was all like a front like that it was they were basically the gorillas like those people were not the band it was just it was just bowie and the spiders um and they did release some singles uh, under albert corns you can hear them did you guys listen to those albert corn songs arnold corn yes i did arnold corn ha, albert arnold corns yes you did uh what'd you think about him
Adventure. Uh, you can find a version of the Moon Age Daydream and um, Hold On To Yourself. Hold on to yourself or Hang On To Yourself. Um, yeah. In the Arnold Corden version, it's done the second disc of the 25th anniversary edition um, that came out in 2002. It, it's a lot more looser. Um, Bowie's definitely sharing the lead vocal duties. Um, they're not bad, but they almost kind of sound like demos. Um, that was my impression of them. I didn't prefer them over what we hear on the album proper. Not at all. They're 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 stripped down and they're slower. Like they there definitely isn't really a drive to them. There is a groove though. I mean, it's kind of fun. He's singing really different than his normal singing style. In some weird ways, it almost sounds like a like a credence, like Bowie doing credence or something. I don't know. What did you think, Steve? Uh, hang on to yourself was all right. It had some slide guitar on it that made it more that uh, kind of stuck out more. That was interesting. My baby got out last Monday. I really like the Moon Age Daydream version. I don't like it more than the original, God. But uh, the Moon Age Daydream version is that might work its way into my rotation. I it had. I'll bring this up a couple times tonight. Some of these songs between this album and actually Transformer have a uh, saloon piano feel to them, and it, it it definitely had that looseness to it, like Mars said that I I liked. Uh, I think the, the the Arnold Core's Moon Age Daydream is worth anybody seeking out. Uh, the the way the pace it moves at, and the way he delivers the and open up your eyes real wide. I uh, I I really enjoyed that. So it's a whole different song. Um, so he did those, and then he did Hunky Dory, and then he started right into Ziggy. And so I think at that time, like his idea of a fake rock star, it became realized, and um, he knew the concept of what he wanted to do. And it's been debated that he wrote the story after the album was done. He sequenced the album and then came up with the story. And I could see that. Um, uh, essentially, the story that he wanted to tell on this was uh, the world is coming to an end. And a benevolent alien force finds a way to save the world. Um, he believes in the power of love and he wants to spread that power and he believes that will save the world. And he decides the way to do it after observing and uh, Earth is through rock and roll. Uh, he finds a human host to uh, uh, a body that he could he could put himself in to do this, to be this rock star. But the human imperfections, the uh, the uh, greed and lust uh, that we are so inclined to do, ends up corrupting his mission, and uh, and he ends up you know in the end it can be debated, and we'll talk about it when we get through the to each song. It can be debated if he succeeds or fails, and that was the concept. Who's who's on the band during this time? So you got you got Wood you got Nick Woody uh, Wood Manzi, who's the drummer. That's correct, and he's the only one that's still alive. Uh, everyone else has passed on. Trevor Boulder on bass. So Eric, if I understand correctly, it's the same band from Hunky Dory. That would be David Bowie on vocals, guitar, saxophones, piano. Nick Ronson, guitar and vocals. Mellotron. Yep, some 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 arrangements here and there, but yeah. And then is this have Trevor Boulder on bass, guitar, and trumpet as well? You got it. And uh, a man that I have learned to love is it Mick Woodmansey? Yeah, you got it. Wood, and I think they call him Woody too. That's his uh, nickname. 
Okay, is this is this Woody's first album that we've covered on the show, or was he on Space Oddity? No, this is uh, this is the first one. Yep. Okay, because he definitely left an impression on me, and uh, that we've covered. That we've covered. He he did play on an earlier one. He did play on Hunky Dory, and he did on uh, Man Who Sold the World. But yeah, yeah that's what yeah. I meant. So the, the definitely, I think Man Who Sold the World through Aladdin Sane have the same, um, and pinups probably probably have the same lineup. And uh, we'll find out. And then a friend of Eric's show, Rick Wakeman, uh, does some piano. Why is he a friend of my show? Because I'm not, I'm not the yes guy here. I'm not the um, yes guy. <laughs> I, I just like the picture of him wearing a cape. But uh, I feel like you're more inclined to yes than I am. But uh, we've, talked about, we've talked about that before. No, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> and so friend, real friend of the show uh, who we hope to interview on the show one day. And I'm not being sarcastic. <laughs> Aim high. Uh, Tony Visconti. He didn't produce this one, though. No, he was nowhere nowhere to be found. He was out producing Mark Boland records at this time. Huh. Let's let's I think I found a tape here. Let's let's see what was going on there. Hello. Hey Dave. Hey, it's a me, a Tony V. Oh, I'm I'm sorry you might have the wrong number. Uh, my name is Ziggy. Ziggy Stardust. Ah, oh, goddamn! Here we go, Dave. Dave, you're doing it again. Last time I called, you called yourself Arnold Corns. Corns, you said. Uh, l- l- Dave, let's talk. I- I've been, I've been over here. I've been cutting the s- the slider with Mark Bolin. Your next album, I gotta bring some of these skills over. What are you working on, pal? I already told you, my name is Ziggy Stardust. I don't know who this Dave you're referring to is. Oh, God. Okay. Ziggy, how's your new album coming? What are the songs about? What you doing? My new album is the greatest album ever made in the history of man and space. I did tell you I'm just working on Mark Boland's new one, The Slider, and he uses his real name. That's cool. Well, Mark Boland uses a lot of things. Mark Bolin uses a lot of product in his hair. And I can tell you that Mick Ronson, who is part of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, doesn't use nearly as much product in his hair, but obtains a much better feathered look to his glamorous hair. So, that being said, I people toss the word glam around quite a bit. But do they really know what is glamorous? No, they do not. Because I, Ziggy Stardust, a man from space, has a much better idea about the fashion industry and what is glamorous of the world. And all of these New York dolls and these slades and these suites and these electric warriors, they don't even really know what glam means. Even though... They were probably doing it before Ziggy Stardust did. I don't... I'm arguing with myself. It's possible I don't know what my real name is. Anyhow, Tony, why are you calling? I just seen if you need any uh, help on the bass on the new album. Uh, any uh, flute work needing to be done? I mean, I got about to get a break over here from, from Bolin. Well, when you're done wasting your time with Bolin, there is a few tracks we have here that I, Ziggy Stardust, a man not named David Bowie could maybe use your help with. I've got one called Moon Age Daydream. 
And um, I think there's some room for some woodwinds and maybe some uh, brass. Okay, well, uh, I'll just finish up here and I'll hop on the next plane. That's worked out for me so well in the past. The next plane? Where? I mean, aren't we in the same town? Now, the Tony, I do know when you are telling a tall tale, you don't even... When's the last time you actually saw Mark Bull? Uh, uh, February. Is the region you're in right now one that required you to get your passport uh, re-upped again? I just declared dual citizenship. You're in Thailand, aren't you, Tony? <laughs> There's a lot to do here, pal. Hey... <laughs> I miss you. I miss you, Dave. Uh, Ziggy. Ziggy. Uh, God. Um, listen, I'm I'm in Thailand. They got a lot of crazy things here. There's actually this uh, doctor. He says he's a doctor. Uh, cosmetic surgeon. And he said he can attach um, actually six more legs. And I could be a spider. I could be a spider from Mars. I could join your band. Ziggy, let me in. Listen, the only reason I, I was trying to throw you a bone earlier... With some of the woodwind work for Moon But you Age threw it Daydream. to Woodsy, didn't you? You threw it right to Woodsy. Well, it sounds to me like you're just jealous because as a woodwind aficionado, his name is actually Woodsy. So it sounds to me like you need to go talk to your parents once again, Tony. And even though my name is Ziggy Stardust, not David Bowie, who had this talk with you many times, you need to work out these issues with Mother... And Father Visconti. So you don't want me to get the surgery and join the band? I think it would be really cool if you had eight legs, but, you know, that's not required to join the band. Perhaps let, let's just do this, you know, this thing here. And maybe a few years down the road, I will, uh, it, well, I am Ziggy Stardust. Maybe that guy David you know, a few years down the road, will discover some weird fascination with the... Uh, soul music or fascism and then that's when uh, you two can work together again how's that sound uh, hey listen i'll take it good luck with you ziggy yeah freak i'm going back to the moon uh tony visconti was uh not the producer ken scott was did ken scott did he work in anything else that we've talked about i don't think so uh not that we've talked about yet i don't believe so no this is his first uh, appearance with us and David Bowie. He's done uh, Elton John. He's done Super Tramp, Devo, The Tubes, Level 42. Did some engineering work on the Beatles records. Duran Duran. Yeah, he's pretty pro prolific. I can kind of see some of that Beatles vibe on this uh, album with some of the string arrangements that you were going to hear. He, he also did Hunky Dory as well, so... And the man who sold the world, he was the audio engineer. He engineered a little bit on Space Oddity, but he wasn't the producer. He also worked with uh, he worked with the Beatles and their solo, solo stuff as well. And David Bowie was a fan of John Lennon stuff specifically, so it all ties together. Old old, old Tony was off uh, banging a gong somewhere else, so he's not going to be found. <laughs> Which surprises right. me because some of the production on this album I thought was great, and. I think they achieved. They really let some of the instrumentation breathe. Yeah. And yeah. I, I bet, I bet Tony would have appreciated. I bet when he first heard it, he did appreciate it. I was shocked when I found out he wasn't playing flutes on Moon Age Daydream on that with the guitar that. 
I thought that for sure that was going to be him. But oh, that's one of the best parts of the album, too. Yeah. So let me ask you this. I mean, we all know that this album is uh, considered one of the world's greatest rock albums of all time. Um, but when it on its initial release, what did the critics say about this album? Everybody liked it. They were they were blown away by this album that came out that was just so conceptualized and complete. And the Chicago Tribune gave it four stars. Pitchfork, traveling back in time, gave it a 10 out of 10. <laughs> Rolling Stone gave it five stars. Spin gave it five stars. Uncut gave it five stars. I am sure if I actually bothered to look in depth and found Enemy or Melody Maker or the, whatever the version of NPR was in the 70s, they'd be giving it five stars too. So what I see that Enemy, uh, New Musical Express, uh, they said that the album has a bit more pessimism than on previous releases and called the album songs simply fine, um, which is interesting because, you know, most of these songs are considered just rock and roll classics. Um, Melody Maker, of course, said there was no well-defined storyline, uh, had odd songs and references to the business of being a pop star that overall add up to a strong sense of biographical drama. Um, but mostly what I'm seeing here in my summary, uh, Circus, Cream, and Rolling Stone, kind of the music rags of the day, all considered it to be a pretty damn fine record. So, yeah. The critics loved it. Audiences seemed to love it because this was what propelled him into, I would say, almost superstardom. And to speak of audiences, part of that was that the album was one thing. The live show was a whole other animal that took what was done on the album. And they put a lot of effort into making this a all-encompassing like media experience. Uh and that day, that just meant probably the live show was great. The live show had costume changes. Uh, the live show had a sense of theatrics to it that you didn't see a lot to that point in a mainstream rock show or mainstreamish. If they were to do this today, I'm sure they probably would have had a uh, two websites, a podcast prepping us for the album coming hmm. out, and I'm sure there 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 would have been some kind of a web page blog thing that uh, gave us the fleshed out the storyline chapters um but what uh back, back then it was a a great live show and and we'll talk a bit about that santa monica album a little bit later not too mm-hmm. much but the live show was definitely what helped uh, you know the, the storyline of ziggy stardust which we'll get into which people have different interpretations of it you cannot deny part of it was a self-fulfilling prophecy of a rock star becoming a rock star. And he definitely did that, and the live show really helped with that. Uh, part of the what also helped to blow up um, was, like, Bowie's persona. I mean, he's admitted he went method on Ziggy. He lived Ziggy. Um, I was reading interviews from the time where um, he'd, he'd say, no, it's, you know, it's me, David. Ziggy's asleep now. Like, he would refer to him as, like, <laughs> a person that's sleeping in the corner of the room. Um, and then, and then Ziggy would take over eventually in the interview. Um, he created the character. There's different theories on this. Um, he, uh, people close to him said that he scrawled on a napkin, uh, a character that's a mixture of, uh, Lou Reed and Iggy Pop, um, as the ultimate pop idol. Um, he's also said that he took influence from this. Apparently I've never listened to this guy before, 
Uh, it's a, a cult musician called the Legendary Stardust Cowboy. You guys, do you guys know that at all? You've, I've never listened to him, but he covered him on uh, Heathen. He did uh, uh, Gemini spacecraft. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And then yeah, uh, that, guy, that guy's actually that the guy's that guy is pretty interesting. <laughs> uh, he also was inspired by um, uh, one of his many costume designers, uh, Kensai Yama, Yamamoto. Yeah. Um, and I just his whole persona was folded into uh, into Ziggy as well. And now it's time to look at this album track by track. And we'll start with five years. Drinking milkshakes cold and long. Smiling and waving and looking so fine. Don't think you knew you were in the song. And it was Oh yes, five years. That unmistakable drum beat, just slowly creeping into the room. Eric, what do you think about that drum beat? Oh, this song is uh, is inspirational. This song it starts with a little drum beat, a little drum roll. Um, you get you got some piano chords that just repeat. There is a repetitive nature of this song that reminds me. The song it doesn't sound anything like your Mogwai's or your Godspeeds, but the way that it builds on a repetitive rhythm into a um, just a jammed out shreddy climax uh, is amazing. And this song, it, it, the, the piano and the drums go until the guitar comes in and his vocals end up very fragile in the beginning and absolutely wailing and nuts at the end. Um, hell of an opener. I'm a big fan of this song. Big fan. Yeah, that, that wailing at the end, I, I made note of it because when we talked about Scary Monsters and we discussed the opening track, which also had a lot of wailing, we all said, oh man, this might be the first time we've ever heard him really cut loose and shred his vocals. Well, that's what happens when you're jumping around album to album and not going in one through line. I think on this track, he really does actually, towards the end of it, that climax, he he really belts and shreds his vocals quite a bit when he's yelling those five years. It, uh, it's almost like a yelp. I love it. It really gets across the, the emotion he's going for. Yeah. Uh, I've got a lot to say about the lyrics on this, but I want to get Mark's two cents before um, I get into that. So, yeah, uh, I, I do love this song so much. I do think that this is probably one of rock and roll's best album openers of all time, and I'm not alone in thinking that. Um, do you guys remember, do you guys remember the first time you, you heard this song? And, uh, you know, in fact, in my notes, um, that I even put that down that I felt like it it was struck by lightning when I first heard it because it kind of slowly builds. And then that outro where we've got five years stuck on my eyes, five years, what a surprise. I mean, that part is just, it's like a freight train running through your emotions. It's it's so good. I bought, first, I bought this I, album. Uh, I had heard, I had other albums in the past past, but this was the first one I bought when I was like, I'm going to buy Bowie. I'm going to get all my Bowie albums. And I got this one. This, I decided I'm going to start with Ziggy. Uh, and because uh, that's the big one. And we'll go from there. And just right off the first track, I was like, OK, I'm I'm in the right place. This this song is amazing. It spoke to yeah, me. Yeah. No, like I've said that 
either the first two albums I had were Space Oddity and the Ziggy Stardust motion picture soundtrack. Then probably the third was probably Ziggy Stardust. And as a teenager, I remember sitting specifically and listening to it, just listening to it. And this track, when the first piano strike happens, being like, whoa, this is something, this is special. I remember just, I, I remember this song told me that I found something special. And uh, I am sure millions of other people had that same effect when they first heard this track. Yeah. Because it does really have the ability to kind of make you well up with tears if the mood kind of strikes right, right? Because those oh, yeah. swelling street oh, range just It has the ability wild. to do that, and I think it also has the ability, like, I think this album overall, but we're not reading it yet. This track in particular is one that where when I hear it, it transports me to the first time I've heard it, and everybody loves it when uh, art does that to them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, there is no audio recording of this anywhere, but, uh, Steve and me and a couple friends fancied ourselves a late night, uh, band for like nine months of our lives. Didn't last long, but we did cover the song and Steve did a great, great vocal performance. Just, just FYI. You know, a couple, couple days ago. So when we leave, uh, the office, we have a garage area and I always go back there and I shout, is there anybody out here? Knowing there's no one out there. And then I lock, lock up the garage. And um, recently my coworker said, Steve, man, you could have, you probably could have been some kind of the baritone or something. And I was like, oh, yes. Sliding doors, my friend. So, <laughs> there you, there you uh, go. Uh, the, so storyline story wise, um, this is my theory, but... The alien is not even in the story yet. This story starts off with the world being told there's five years left. And the most of, one of the most effective lines is right off the top. News had just come over. We had five le- years left to cry in. News guy wept and, and told us Earth was really dying. And like just the image of like a news reporter crying on camera as he's saying, yeah, the world's going to die. We got five years and it's gone. And the damn countdown with climate change happening right now just impounds that idea. Um, oh yeah, no, this this is much more close to real life than we want it to be than when it was put out. But I can I feel like every time we read some article that's like, oh, another another study came in, the ice caps are melting ten times as fast as we thought. I get the same vibe. Yeah. Uh he and then the character is walking um I believe this is the character that will end up playing host to Ziggy, but he's walking through the street. And he's just taking things in. His brain hurt like a warehouse because he's taking in all, like he knows the world's gone. He wants to remember. He wants to hold on to life, the good and the bad. He's talking about the fat, skinny people, the tall, short people, the nobody people. I never thought I'd need so many people. Like that's an awesome line right there. Like he, like or hate, he needs people and they're all going to go away at the end of the world. And it's just a beautiful moment. The one, the one, the one line that always loved is the, Milkshakes cold and long. Yeah, that, uh, absolutely. Just, just sticks with me. And it's then always the stuck. Next line with the smiling and waving and looking like just that vocal delivery, yeah. fantastic. So yeah, some people are living their lives normally, like the people in the malt shop. Uh, mm-hmm. Some people are like, there's like a mom that's trying to kill her kids, like in another line. Um, the cop knelt, knelt and kissed the feet of a priest, and the queer threw up at the side of that. He's bringing in like um, some of the the more like. Uh, um, you know, sexual orientation, uh, things that he's dabbling with there. But really he's talking about like, yeah, the law is bending over to religion. It's the end of the world. Like, lo- like, you know what I mean? Like suddenly the powers will shift. And um, 
And that's kind of a crazy image to think about. So, uh, yeah. So it's basically him just taking in the center of the world and, and trying to hold on to, to the images of people as it all kind of unfolds. And it's, um, it's an epic song. It goes two whole verses before we ever hit a hook. It's an interesting format. It just builds on two verses. You get your hook, you get one more verse, and then you get an, uh, an amazing hook to blast us out to the end of the song. The way, the way it builds and the way it leads in and paints the picture of, uh, how people might be reacting to the end of the world coming across the news waves is really good. Just the idea of just looking around and just seeing what's going on with the cop and the priest and the lady and the kids. And they do, it's a really, it paints a good picture. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the way the howling outro definitely conveys that sense of uh, chaos that might happen, even though it starts off and it ends. So, uh, pretty, World is ending and we need a hero. And that should be, have been the second song. Um, there's, there's one, um, <laughs> there's one sound effect in this song that I love. I don't know what it is towards the end of it. When they're going through the five years, my brain hurts a lot. There's this like warble guitar howl. Do you guys know what yeah, I'm talking about? Yeah. It's like, whoa, it just kind exactly. of that. I don't know. It's, it's Ronson just uh, having a heyday back there. It's Whatever it beautiful. is, it's always it fits in so well. It's, yeah. it, it, it's one of the many things in this record that makes it special. It's so it, it's it, it is otherworldly. Whatever that damn yeah. sound is. Yeah, yeah. Oh, those of you that haven't revisited five years in a long time, I highly recommend it. It never is not uh, relevant. Yeah, I mean, also the piano work reminds me of some of the stuff that we're going. The piano work in this album is great. And I think that Transformer is such a good uh, complement to this record. And the piano work in five years sounds like it could also be on Transformer. Yeah. Um, makes sense because a lot of the same guys were playing piano. So. One other thing about this before we move on. Um, did either one of you read about that rumor that Bowie was – apparently he chose the length of, the, of time five years as a result of a dream in which he is dead – father told him that he must never fly again and he would die in five years. Did either one of you ever? I did. Yeah. I, yes, I did. I did read that. Yeah. I wonder if that, I mean, I don't know where that rumor came from or what sourcing we really have, but I think that's kind of interesting. Well, I, I do because some of the earlier albums and we haven't talked about them much except for space oddity, a lot of his writing before he started coming up with characters and telling he he ended up creating characters and telling stories. And he also then started conveying ideas with cut up abstract, abstract thoughts later, but his earlier work, a lot of it was informed by his family and the mental illness that was in his family. And so that being an inspiration for a song like this does not surprise me. Not saying that his father, uh, I don't know if his father had any issues, but a disturbing message from his father informing a song in a dream does not surprise me. I remember talking about his dad when we talked about uh, Memories of a Free Festival, the closer on Space Oddity. His dad was supportive of his lifestyle and, and basically financially backed his lifestyle to be like a, a um, you know, a, a art mecca in his little community. And his dad died right before that free festival he held uh, and, and, and wrote the song. Not about his dad at all. 
but it's it is it is reflective uh, of all that. Anyways, just just kind of because yeah, I understand his dad was actually like you said more supportive, but it was his mom that he always always had a kind of a uh, it's kind of a somewhat strained relationship with. At least that new documentary, uh, David Bowie Finding Fame, right, kind of goes into that a little bit. That's right. Yeah, yeah, and I we all watched that, correct? Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, track two. Soul love. So, Soul Love is about as funky as it gets on this album. Um, some of the music on here kind of reminds me of his uh, his later, his mid to later 70s uh, music. You've got a really groovy bass going on. Guitarist kind of playing more of a rhythm role. Um, and then Bowie busts out the baritone sax to give it a little drive. The song itself, it's very smooth. It's a very smooth and clean song. Um, it's an interesting track, too. Uh, aesthetically, looking at the lyrics of this song, it is a song uh, taking on different ideas of love. You start with a mother that's kneeling at the grave of her son who died in the war. You go on to a uh, young couple that are in love um, that may or may not be doomed. Um, Love descends upon the defenseless. Idiot love will spark the fusion. Uh, what does this mean for the big story? Um, what you have here is you have, this is our first glimpse of the benevolent alien who, uh, who wants to save the earth. Um, and what he's seeing here is he realizes that love, he believes in love. And that's, 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 that's a straight up lyric. Um, all I have is my love of love. And that's what he, that's what he wants to do to save the world. He will end up finding out that he could do that through rock and roll. Um, and that's kind of how it fits fits into this song. Uh, I like it. Um, it's not, uh, it's definitely in the lower half of my favorite songs in this album. Um, but I do think it's got a really great sax part and um, it's, it's nice and funky. And I do like how it basically, it's the mission statement for our alien. What you hear in the background right now is Soul Love covered by Milky Edwards and the Chamberlings. Oh, come on. I think the first five tracks in this album are all home runs. And I think that this is slotted perfectly between five years of Moon Age Daydream. After the uh, climax of five years, it takes a step back. And it takes a step back in a manner that you don't expect, but it fits in so well with this album. It's kind of soulful. It's got these claps and snaps that just work for me. And then it's got that bass line. That bass line just comes in and uh, it just, the production of this album is so crisp that it just sounds perfect with what they're doing. And one of the reoccurring vocalizations of this album is there are a lot of coos and oohs and ahs and, and kind of callbacks to doo wop style. And it, during the soul love, in the background you get that. You know what I'm talking about? It's just like, it sounds like a Gelfling. <laughs> oh, don't bring that up. 
I am, oh, I'm in love with Gelflings right now. But yeah, that, uh, that, uh, you got it. Your, your head, that layering of vocals is great. Yeah, that's going on. And, but then Mick Ronson comes in and his guitar literally sounds like it's sliding in. the first love is not loving uh, right. section and yeah. it's perfection. It's funny. I just mentioned he's doing mostly rhythm stuff, but no, there's some great lead guitar work on here. It's just not, um, it's just not like spotlight. Like I'm shredding. It just is like, yeah, I'm going to just, I'm going to definitely riff, but it's going to be in the groove of the song. It's, it's no, yeah. He picks his moment that, that inspirations have I none that section, the guitar comes in not overpowering reminds you you're listening to a rock album. And then love is not loving. And then all of a sudden a horn comes in and I love it. Uh, it's, it's, I, I am a big fan of this track. Yeah. Yes. I'm pretty much second. Um, everything you guys said, I'm a big fan of this track as well. Um, I think it slides in perfectly at track two. Um, big fan of that chorus. Uh, and Mick Ronson has some excellent guitar work. Uh, but don't really have anything else to add to what you guys said because a lot of my notes actually did highlight some of the points that you all made. So, yeah, I'm a fan. I like it. Uh, Mick Ronson did record a country and western version. No, he recorded uh, a ska he... version of it. It's a ska version. Or it's, it's a country ska version. Yeah. It could be both. It could be both things. Yeah. Uh, I think it's worth worth seeking out. It's called Stone Love. Stone Love. And yeah, it's it's yeah. it's got some country elements and then it's got some like like kind of ska moments to it. So check it out. Yeah, so you know, I I think it was important to take a deep breath because they knew they started working on this song a few years before. Or a year before, whatever. They knew that the next track was going to be one of the most defining songs of the 70s, one of the most defining songs of David Bowie, one of the most defining songs of song. <laughs> Moon Age Daydream. I'm an alligator. I'm a mama papa coming for you. I'm a space invader. I'll be a rock and roll
So that was a very long clip from Moon Age Daydream. And that's my favorite song on this record. It is one of my favorite songs of all time. There is a reason for that. It has to do with the fact that the studio version is perfection. And if you were looking at me right now, you'd see I just did the, like the chef's kiss sign. But then we're not going into this much tonight as we discussed. We're not going to talk much about the Ziggy Stardust motion picture. But the live version they documented for that movie is also perfection. This is a song that I don't even know if I can find the words to talk about how much I love it. So I'm going to ask Mark to try to do it for me. So, yeah, this song is quite something. Um, I believe, Steve, I think you showed me the live album soundtrack before I actually even purchased the studio one. So actually, I think I heard the live version before I heard the studio version. And that guitar solo is uh, quite memorable. And it's not to say that it's not as strong and amazing on the studio record, but certainly when you play, uh, you have a live musician really having more of a freedom to really start to do some funky, fun stuff. But I will say, even on the studio version, this this guitar solo is out of this world. Uh, oh, yeah. No, they, the guitar solo on the album is still great. Yeah. Uh, they just on... on... The Ziggy Stardust motion picture, what they did is during the live show, they would extend it so he could do a costume change. And Mick Ronson decided to, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take this thing to 11. And I swear, if you watch or listen, but I think if you watch it, you get a better idea. Watch the Ziggy Stardust motion picture. The guitar solo to the end of Moonage Daydream, by the end of it, you might be levitating. Uh, (laughs) Just so that... Just the guitar solo, it echoes off into the distance, and then he grabs it and brings it back and just power slams what he's doing into the ground. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. In my notes, I've got some of the description of where it fits in the narrative, but I'll, I'll let Eric describe that a little bit better. Um, I, uh, when I first saw Guardians of the Galaxy Part 1, and they had this in there, I was like, this is very fitting. Um, it's perfect. I'm glad that uh, David Bowie is coming back in the zeitgeist and not just remembered for just his iconic songs because, you know, I know that, you know, a lot of fans have a lot of uh, heartfelt feelings for this song. I still think that when it debuted in 1971, I don't think it failed. I don't, I don't think it charted very well as a single, but, you know, Bowie diehards absolutely love this song. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's quite something. This song is I don't know if this is my favorite song because there's so many iconic songs on here, but it definitely is is up there uh tied for number 1, no doubt. Eric, tell us about the narrative. Yeah, the yeah, this song is kind of um this is the alien getting his plan together. He, you know, he's an alligator. So he's like, you know, uh he's a mama papa coming for you. He's a uh you know, he and that's where he's playing with like the uh, the 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 gender uh, dual gender roles. What you have here is you have him basically saying like, "I'll be your rock and roll bitch." Like I, I will. I I need to become a a pop star to spread my my soul love. 
Eric, you skipped over the fact that he literally says he's a space invader. Oh yeah. He's a space invader. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, 100%. Yo, he's straight up telling you, yeah, I'm from space. I'm going to spread my magic of love. And I, the best way to do that is through rock and roll. And that's what this song is about. I bring you love. Uh, is that the love between a man and a woman or the love of a man for a fine Cuban cigar? <laughs> I bring you love. It's bringing love. Don't let it get away. Break its legs. Wait. You want an alien? This is your alien. Hello, children. I bring you love. It's a monster. Kill it. Kill it. It's not a monster. It's Mr. Burns. Oh, it's Mr. Burns. Kill it. Yeah! Oh, no, let me. And uh, he needs a host, but that's for the next track. So he's it's, he's building up. This is very like a very much a narrative song. But I, I can remember when we recorded um, the Nine Inch Nails episode Year Zero, uh, and there's a lot of actually <laughs> there's a lot of narrative ties between the two. But anyways, one of the things Mark had brought up was like, well, yeah, it's a good song for the story. When we were talking about the um, vessel. You're like, it's a good song for the story, but it doesn't stand by itself. This is an example of a song that is 100% story, but it's also 100% fun at the same time. I love it. And yeah, that guitar riffing with the penny whistle. That's 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 lifeblood for me right there. That's a great. That's right. Yeah, that's that part, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, you don't find that in the live version. You find, well, actually, no, in the Ziggy Stardust era, you don't find that part. They just do a little uh, guitar wizardry, but they did bring this back during like the Thin White Duke era and stuff. They do some uh, interesting tricks during the on the album. That part sounds great. Yeah. Uh, it was written a few years before they started really going for whatever storyline Eric thinks they're telling here, <laughs> which I know they are telling some kind. They're telling some kind of story. And I, I think what they did was they retrofit that song, the chorus version, into what they were doing here. But it fits what, for what you're saying. Uh, yeah, some of the stuff, the Space Invader stuff, they did. They actually, if you listen to the the Arnold Corns, it's not in there. That stuff, that like that whole... Um, I'm an alligator that all that this stuff is not in there. So they definitely added some lyrics for this, but I think you're right. Well, I no, think the song is still about some, like, you know, basically an alien that's trying to save, save the world through love. That's what it originally was. And then they built a story around it. I think you're absolutely right. This was the starting point. Yeah, but no, it definitely is him proclaiming. It is Ziggy Stardust telling you he is the past. He is the future and everything he is. And even, you know, the, the band uh, the, the, and even Ken Scott, they are also documented as saying this is their favorite track off the album. It's a very powerful track. Uh, some of the things that make it magical for me is the 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 way the piano kind of crashes with the the vocalizations of the the cooing and the ooing, you know that that section, and um, also the "Don't fake it, baby, lay the real thing on me." Uh, the line lay the real thing on me is something that 
I, I don't know. I, I just think of that line often. I think it just, you know, don't give me bullshit. Just, you know, l- lay the news down on me, brother. That's right. I, 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 give it to me I straight, Doc. Give it to me yeah. straight. Yeah. Um, and I, I have to say that if you were to strip everything away, and even though that it was part of that R on course thing, but if you were to just have this be just the, the if, you, if you listen for it, there is some acoustic guitar work going on. It could still be an early David Bowie song, and I like it when you see those flashes to the past. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's a great track. I, uh, yeah. I can't say enough great things about it. Um, my my friend who's not a big David Bowie fan, um, when he found out that I was getting into David Bowie years and years and years ago when we both worked at the record store, um, he remembered his sister listening to this album. And this, this gentleman is uh, a little bit older than I am. So he remembered actually kind of when this uh, album actually came out. And he always thought that he, the I'm an alligator part was I'm an elevator. And the mama papa was I'm a mother, mama popper, which <laughs> translated to motherfucker. So it was quite an interesting, like... Oh, there's some. I was gonna bring up some ridiculous covers later, and there are some where they say, "I'm a motherfucker coming for you." There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little, little, little harder than they need to be. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that could yeah, have been the also, intention of the line. You never know. You know. Yeah. It's also it's another showpiece for uh, for Mick Ronson's work. I, I think that he's he's great on it. There's the the don't fake it, baby. In between that and Lay the Real Thing on Me, he does a guitar slide that's so awesome. You know what I'm talking about. That, don't fake it, baby. Lay the Real Thing on Me. Oh, it's so good. So I know, um, I might as well just bring it up now. Did you listen to the new mix that was on that 2002 reissue? Either one of you had access to that? Yes, that's what I listened to the whole thing on. Oh, man, they really pump up Mick Ronson's guitar work on that one, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, that's something else. No, it's good. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so top top marks for Moon Age Daydream. That's right. That's right. Let's not neglect Woody Woodsman's drumming on this track. This is the first track in this album where when I listen for it, he's a very good drummer. He's not too showy, but he gets in where he needs to fit in. And there's some parts in Moon Age Daydream where he really just uh, he, he gets in a little... Uh, a couple more kick drums than you're expecting, and it works out very well. I, I think he's mic just right for this record. He's very John Bonham-esque, I think. I mean, I not just him, but I think the whole rhythm section with Trevor Boulder's bass. I mean, a lot of times uh, he's just taking that bass line for a walk, and it's just kind of more subtle because, I hate to say it, does really seem to be the David Bowie and Mick Ronson hour, and, um, but they're really just laying down that foundation for them to shine. If you listen to that on the version of the Ziggy Stardust movie, the the baseline, while, while Mick Ronson's blasting the Mars and back, the baseline does some pretty awesome the trickery to to keep you engaged. Yeah. So keep an ear, keep keep an ear on that baseline, babe. So after that Moon Age daydream, we're still up in space, and we are going to be the Starman. Woody Woodmansy. In 72, was it, when David did Starman? A lot of people watching it. It was like in America when the Beatles went on Ed Sullivan, but much more profound because there was David looking amazing. 
Uh, he's got his arm round Mick Ronson. Can you imagine all the parents absolutely <laughs> outraged. <laughs> yeah. So were you doing Top of the Pops that night with him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was... Uh, I think we had status quo were lined up in the corridor to go into the studio because you all had a separate stage and uh, they were all in denim and we were all in our kind of glam flash gear. And it was really, it was really quiet and Francis Rossi just went, you guys make us feel so old. And we'd, everybody just cracked out laughing. It was, <laughs> it was just, it was a weird moment because we looked like we looked and they were still in the denim and all that. It was that period, you know. Um, but you don't, you know, when you, when you did that show, you didn't really think about what effect it was having. Do you know what I mean? It was only later on that we realized because we were that night, we were on our way up to a gig in Scotland. So we didn't even see it. You know, it was only when you saw the reports of the effect it had had. And, and to think that that's, that track nearly wasn't on the album, Ziggy, you know, cause we'd finished Ziggy and the, the record company said, no, we're not releasing it. And then we went, why? And he said, because you haven't got a single. So David just went home at the weekend and wrote it. Wow. <laughs> just banged it out, you know. He could do that. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I think he could always do that when he felt like it. If he felt it fitted and he wanted to do that, he would just knock one out, you know, like, like Bevel Rebel Heroes. There was always one that he'd, no matter what the genre was, he seemed to have that ability to just write the hit to front that album, you know. Didn't know what time it was, the lights were low, oh, oh. I leaned back on my radio, oh, oh. Some cat was laying down some rock and roll, not a soul he said. Then the loud sound it seemed to fight, came back like a slow voice on a wave of Ah, so if Moon Age Daydream was the uh, the alien's mission statement to save Earth through love, he needs a vessel, and he's gonna find his vessel in the song Starman. He uh, will he broadcast like a cosmic DJ. Um, Starman? Star you're saying it, or... you're saying it like it's a Jewish accountant. Like let's. <laughs> Saul, this, is, this is my attorney, Saul Starman. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so he's gonna bra- broadcast his his uh, proposal to young Ziggy, a human, a hu- probably the human from uh, five years. Uh, he needs his body. You, would you like to be a rock star, son? Would you like to save the world through your rock and roll? Uh, let's let's uh, let's conjoin, and then and that's what this song is about. It's a it's also a song about pop music, um, and. Uh, Kind of how it how it was affecting people at the time. I don't know. What do you guys think about the song? I I do love this song. Uh, what really does it for me is the piano telegraphing that dun, 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 right before the chorus. Apparently, according to Bowie, uh, he was speaking to William S. Burroughs in Rolling Stone magazine in 1973, and he indicated that Ziggy Stardust is not the Starman, but merely his earthly messenger. Um, so it. The lyrics for me describe Ziggy Stardust bringing a message of hope uh, to Earth's youth through the radio, um, salvation by an alien Starman. 
Um, and the story is told from the point of view of one of those people like that's actually listening um, to the character Ziggy Stardust. So it's not necessarily... Oh, I see what you mean. I see what you, you mean. see what I'm saying? Like, I see because, what you mean. yeah. Yeah. It's a great song, though. Um, and that's, I think, where the telegraphs come in. Like, the, it's, a, it's a cute little uh, technique that they're using that it's almost like a radio transmission. And... Dun-dun, 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 and then there's a star man. Yeah. Um, yeah, the song is, like you said, very theatrical. It, this is a great song. And yeah, the, the uh, SOS part you're talking about, Mark... I specifically use that when we introduced that we were doing David Bowie from the Nine Inch Nails podcast because I think yeah. that transition, that transition, that ba-nip, 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 there's a star man. I think it's a great transitional sound, and it's so sweeping. Yeah. Um, and the way the way the track starts, uh, I I feel like the the way the way this track starts and ends, it starts in a very different place. It starts like you could. Uh, I don't know, somebody sitting in a in their loft or something, just playing it. But by the time you get to where the song thinks it's going, you're on the streets and you're dancing and doing Gene Kelly shit on a telephone pole. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, yeah, Mark, I think you're onto something. I think I think uh, the I think the human vessel, Ziggy, has already been conjoined with the alien and he's on his mission and now he's now he's singing to the youth. So that and that and that I think you're absolutely right. Now I remember my connection to Year Zero. So if you remember, like the plot of Nine Inch Nails Year Zero, when they get to the warning, uh, it's basically like, okay, you guys gotta fix it up, or we're gonna cleanse you out of the universe. Um, I just like the part where there's a star man waiting in the sky. He told us not to blow it because he knows it's all worthwhile. Just that whole like, in a way, it's a warning. Like if you follow me, we can actually do something good. We can change things. Um, and then of course, human, uh, human fallacy, uh, will, will, will fuck everything up, but yes, great song. But to the, to the sound of the song, it it starts out very folky again, David Bowie started out folky and as it gets more fleshed out and there's a star man, and then it goes like, that's, that's the, the orchestral version of it. And then it gets into the, you know, the Mick Ronson comes in, the bow, 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 bow. And everybody starts clapping. And it gets in time it gets into Mark's favorite territory, which is a uh, Uncle Fun Times Good Time Band uh, status with the claps as it closes out. That's where we haven't talked much about it. That's where you really get on this record, there's a few other places this already happened. It gets very glammy towards the end of it. Everybody's clam clapping stomping their foot. The guitar is taking the uh, front stage and just making you groove. And uh, the way this song closes out, yeah, I can very much see like Mark Bolin like nodding his head. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, so especially with Let All the Children Boogie, like I feel like mm-hmm. boogieing is what you do in glam rock, you know? Yeah, you, you, put your, you put your cape on and you boogie. That's it. Yeah, Starman, another... Another hit. Uh, we're we're four for four so far, and because this time I'm gonna <laughs> pay hyper attention to what is next. That lead that <laughs> that 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 will lead us into it ain't easy.
It's that time again. It's the shilling time. Where we remind you here at Pod Like a Hole that maybe you'd consider becoming a subscriber to our Patreon. Patreon forward slash Pod Like a Hole. For a small donation, you can continue to get all the great shows you already get, but you're giving a little back. Yes, for the discussions about the glam rock and uh, the side projects and all those little bonus things we could throw behind a paywall, we don't. Why would we do such a thing? But pretend that we did. Well, then you'd become a Patreon subscriber. But since you don't, well, the choice is up to you. And maybe now we'll find out exactly what kind of person you really are. So, Patreon forward slash pod like a hole. about it ain't easy is much like starman starts in one place i think starman starts in an audible place it makes me think of a guy sitting in his room strumming and then it gets more bombastic it ain't it ain't easy specifically tells you what you're doing at the start of the song the way he discusses sitting on the top of the rooftops and then you bounce down the rooftops like you're bouncing between chimneys it makes me think of the beginning of a movie and you know Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins bouncing down off some roofs. And uh, that imagery is great to me. You know, it's interesting about this song that I never knew until actually I was diving into the research for it, that this is not a David Bowie song. This is a Ray Davies, or uh, excuse me, a Ron Davies uh, Davies song. Not to be mixed up with Ray Davies from the the Kings, yeah. That's right, that's right. Um, He was uh, a singer that, um, you know, I think was around the Nashville area. Um, it, this song has been covered by, you know, such likes as Three Dog Night, um, even before David Bowie covered it. Uh, Long John Baldry, Dave Edmonds, and then later Shelby Lynn. And it certainly does have that kind of country twang to it during the chorus. Yes.
does, like, to Steve's point, it really does still fit in the narrative of things. I don't know what it is, but I, I don't, it, I don't know. I do enjoy this song a lot, though. But I just never knew it was not a David Bowie original. Uh, as far as where it fits in the narrative, um, right. let me just say, musically, I'm, I'm okay with it. I think it fits good in the flow of the album. It's got some good moments. Um, one of the my, one of the least more memorable songs for me on this, but as far as it fits in the narrative, it, I don't think it does <laughs> lyrically, um, except the chorus. It ain't easy and easy to get to heaven when you're going down. It's like part of that is is the is the Ziggy is trying to save the world through love, and maybe it's just it's hard to do when you're going down, like when you're when you're getting pulled in to the negative influences. That's all I think. All right. That's it. But 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 more what I think is think I'm gonna get kind of weird here. Think about it like this. Almost every song in here is a story. Telling the story, right? You never actually, in that sense, you never actually know what, what Ziggy Stardust sounds like. Because <laughs> every song is David Bowie telling the story of Ziggy Stardust. So maybe this is the one song that's like, this is what his band sounded like. This is what Ziggy sounded like when he played for Bingo. There it is. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yep. Awesome. I love you, Mark. I imagine if they sound like anything, they sound like Moon Age Daydream, but that's fine. <laughs> You're probably right too. But I was just trying to figure out what, I, why, why it was included on the album. And that's where my head went. So I also, I, I think that there is a version of Ziggy Stardust where there's no aliens involved and maybe it's more just about a rock and roll singer uh, becoming popular and then tossing it all aside. And if you were to look at the album that way, all the pre the people got their problems. That ain't nothing, uh, nothing new. It's kind of a guy just being like, well, I'm writing all this music and everybody's got their issues, but uh, we've all been there before, but I'll still write these songs. I think audibly though, it, it fits perfectly. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. Like yeah. Right. Right. Right in between Starman, Star, Starman. And uh, <laughs> what have I done? And, uh, <laughs> Uh, Lady Lady Stardust, I believe, is next. So, yeah, I do love that line. It ain't easy to get to heaven when you're going down. And this is the track that has Rick Wakeman on there on the harpsichord. He's hidden in there. He's not credited, but he's there. He was actually uh, offered to do all like to add keyboards to every song, and he just uh, he was actually starting yes at this exact moment, and did not pick them up on that offer. That's why there you know there really isn't a, a keyboard overlay at all. So that the album may have sounded. Con- entirely different it does sound it, it is very uh groovy and southern sounding uh it has that the, the guitar towards the end where it kind of slows down the sounds very much like they uh yeah they decided to take a, a tour through the right. south yeah especially that uh it, it sounds like a slide guitar going on uh with you know it ain't easy you know the it ain't easy part though you can't deny that that really just comes in like an atom bomb. It ain't easy. That's a yeah. They they really made sure that that part fills your head with sound. Well, played a show before, like back in the like seventy seventy one is a BBC show, and he closed with this song, and he had um he had like some like gospel singers like singing over him, uh, and apparently they tore down the house as a closing number. So I think for a while there, he kicked around this being the closing of the whole album, but for this, and they took the singers out, obviously, and it's the closing. It still has that kind of gospel feel with the clapping, but it closes outside one. 
Yeah, closes out. We so we close out side one with a little black country rock. We start side two with Lady Stardust. So Lady Stardust, this this is typically probably my least favorite song on the album, but that doesn't mean I don't like it. I think it's a good song. It took me years to appreciate it, though. It used to be a skipper for me. And the thing with Lady Stardust is, is you need to give it about a minute to really get going to where you realize what they're trying to do with this track. I think that uh, it's placed perfectly as the start to the second side of the album. If you give it the space to, space to breathe, that it needs. Yeah, I mean, uh, I do actually really enjoy this song. Um, it is kind of a your little slow dance song. It kind of reminds me of some of the songs off of like "Goodbye Yellow Brick Road" by Elton John. With a oh, there's no, there's definitely Elton John is my touchstone for this song. It sounds like an Elton John song, especially the the it's all right that whole part. Yeah. Really... The band was all together like like that is just pure Elton John right there. Um, this song is generally interpreted as uh, a nod to Mark Bolin from T-Rex, uh, almost like a biograph- autobiograph- no, biographical uh, indication of how he got his start and how he was one of the glam rock pioneers. Um, has great piano work, I feel, by Mick Ronson. And I never noticed that Bowie says the phrase, get some pussy now at the end of the yeah. song. Did you guys ever notice that? <laughs> no. He he says it. He doesn't sing it. He just says it. Get some pussy now. Get some pussy now. Well, I think narrative-wise, I think that makes sense. I, 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 you know, as maybe offensive as it is to hear, I think that makes sense because yeah, it's about it's about Mark Bolin. It's looking at. It's looking at and it's about Mark Bolin. It's also about Ziggy. It's about the 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 part in that rock star trajectory when um, you start getting attention and boys and girls both love Ziggy. Um, they uh, the uh, what is it here? They stared at the makeup of his face, laughed at his long black hair, his animal grace. But the boy in the bright blue jeans jumped on stage, and uh, you have that kind of transformation. He goes from being the boy in the blue jeans to being the uh, the lady stardust um, and it's 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 playing with gender identity there and, and and it's definitely dipping its toes into bisexuality which was um i mean bowie just straight up in this era claimed he was gay which you know history tells us that's actually not true but it was he uh he you know was was definitely living that that lifestyle and that culture for a while i think there's some really interesting writing if you want to look into was that a good or a bad thing right so you know some people who actually are gay and were gay at the time appreciated just it because it it brought their life you know it it, it brought it out into into the culture and 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 not only made it okay to talk about it, but made it kind of cool and there were some people that said yeah but he was a poser you know he wasn't really he was just fucking around and um you know didn't he he got to you know enjoy the fun part of it and never had to live with the struggle of it um and i think there's a valid argument on both sides yeah, they didn't they didn't play that song live often, but when a couple times when they did, they actually projected Mark Boland's face into the backdrop. There you go, so, on the nose. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's definitely about his counterpart from the time. I, I do like the song. Um, uh, the demo is interesting because the demo is just him and a piano, and it really goes more into that Elton John territory. The band was all together, and he was all right. I do like the final version better, though, when you add the other the other elements into it. Um, I do like I do like the song. It's it's definitely uh, it's definitely a slow a slow burn. But um, at first, when I was listening to it, I was like, ah, I'm probably put this in my least favorite. And then as the song went on, I was like, no way, this is like dead center for me. Like I I actually. Actually, I would put this in maybe even in towards the upper half. It's a good one. That's what I'm saying. You just need to yeah. give it room to breathe. That's it. Much like maybe the new Tool album, I'm still not sure. But with this song, this song, instead of asking for me a 10 minutes for each track, it's asking for me about two minutes or three. And by the time it's about a minute in, I'm, I'm picking up what it's putting down. All right. The band played all together. That that whole section. And I think it's definitely a good breather track in the middle of the record like that, starting the second side off. Yeah, I would agree because I think you said earlier that the rest of the record gets really glam rock oriented, right? And I think the next track really kicks that off. Yeah. And narrative speaking, it's it's the it's the calm before the storm. They're just enjoying their their fame uh, before the dark side of fame rears its ugly head which is Star. Yeah, listen, listen, before you listen to Star, or rather, just, just check out the first, the opening riffs on, say, like, um, White Light, White Heat, or Waiting for the Man by Velvet Underground. guitar strumming with the pounding piano um he straight up says he, he's in debt to velvet underground on this song and uh, you can totally hear it uh yeah you just have a you know you have a story here about uh beaven and sunny uh people that want to change the world and transform into a rock and roll star it is um you know it's it's just a story uh not so much about ziggy as it is a a, a, a story about how people change through fame, through money, and, and rock and roll. Um, it's kind of unrelentless. The beat is up. It plays a lot. There isn't a lot of dynamics to this song, though. Um, uh, it wouldn't I wouldn't say it has a lot of rising action. It starts pretty high and doesn't go higher or lower as it goes on. Um, it's, it's a fine song, uh, but it's not one of my favorites on here. Um, despite the fact that I love Velvet Underground, I just they could still do their kind of thing with, with dynamics. And he didn't really go there with this song. This sounds like the middle of a stage play, or you're going into the last act and there people are running around and changing the set and stuff. Uh, while you, you, you hope they don't notice it's very fast paced. It's very frenetic. And I can imagine a whole bunch of, uh, actions going on behind the, the song. I feel like the song's almost a distraction for setting up the last act of the record. Yeah. 
it serves its purpose for where it is on the album. Yeah, I wouldn't omit it from the record, but it is probably my least favorite song because um, it's really not the strongest. I mean, it, it's just kind of like a fast little number. I mean, it kind of sounds like a, just a typical glam rock song. I mean, that would just like, here you go. This could be done by anybody. Right. Um, I like the outro with the guitar riff. That's, that's a fun one. But I just, I mean, I think Steve indicated it's not quite memorable by kind of forgetting what song we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Um, But with that said, I wanted to bring up something else though. This song reminds me of uh, Space Hogs album, Resident Alien. Uh, I know neither of you are Space Hog fans. I did see them live uh, because I was a big fan of their one radio hit was in the meantime. It's a great song. I do not dislike Space Hog, but I... They're not great. They're not a great band. They don't have a lot of great songs, but this is really indicative of the sound that they have. It says a lot. I mean, just the fact that, like, they owe a lot to, obviously, glam rock, but this song being one of Bowie's weaker songs is their template. (laughs) And, um... So, I, I, I... I, I love the song in the meantime. That song is fantastic. I don't care if, uh, you know, they're, it's definitely not a, you know, a band that I'm going to, you know, die on that hill for, but I can recognize the fact that in the meantime has a unbelievable killer bass line. But yeah, that's all I have to say about that song. All righty. Yeah, no, that's a, it's an all right track for what it's trying to do. It's a bridge track, if you will. It gets you from Lady Stardust and it moves you right in to hang on to yourself. to yourself this song they use this as the opener for a lot of their tours at this time and there's a reason for that it's because this song grabs you by your uh, shirt collars and it doesn't let go uh it's a it's got rising action up the wazoo if you will and i know eric said that star kind of had some uh velvet undergrounding going on I think this song sounds like it could also be influenced by the Billboard Underground sound quite a bit. Absolutely, especially when he goes, uh, um, and me, I'm on a radio show. It's like rock and roll. Uh, and me, I'm in a rock and roll band. It's, uh, it's a similar similar vocal delivery. But yeah, in general, I do hear that in this a lot. And around this time, he was covering White Light, White Heat in his live shows. think you're going to make it you better hang on to yourself that's a great lyric um eric in the 
storyline? How does that tie into things? Here? Yeah, so this is that other side. So Lady Stardust and uh, is you know he's getting all this this great attention uh, from boys and girls alike, and like he's feeling the love back. This is the other side. This is the groupies. This is the people, the latchers, the leeches, the people hanging on. They wanting attention and money. Um, and this is basically like the the alien and Ziggy talking in his head. Like Ziggy's like, well, look at all this. Like she go, you know, this girl's cute. She's you know, she's a, a tongue twisting storm. Um, and 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 the alien's like, no, you, if we're gonna do this, you got to hang on to yourself. You can't lose yourself in all of this craziness. We're not gonna save the world if you go after that. And hence, that's the that's the the imperfection that makes us human that ends up ruining. Uh, the plans the, to save the world, and this is this is where we're seeing that. And I'll uh, kind of echo what Steve said about um, it being just destined to be a, a live opener, um, letting the audience know what they're what's about to unfold. Just really setting the stage. Better buckle up, you know. Um, musically, it definitely has uh, influenced from that sound from like I could, you know, David Bowie during this phase was also performing White Light, White Heat, and you could tell that velvet underground sound but i think uh, a lot of punk bands that came out mm-hmm. in the later half of the 70s or actually kind of in the early 70s you could definitely hear that dun 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 no 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 it's kind of like a just a traditional punk riff right it sounds it sounds like it sounds like the ramones it sounds eric and i were just talking about uh mark when you were incapacitated last week we were talking about the new york dolls this sounds like new york dolls would have uh, totally yeah and the lyrics are pretty sleazy so that would work for them too uh, I, lo- I love the line, but we move like tigers on Vaseline. <laughs> yes. That's a great, great line. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a quick song, gets in and gets out, but it has it's, it's dynamic still. Unlike Star, which kind of gets in and just stays at the same speed, I feel that between the, the initial blast of this track and then the tigers on Vaseline type lyric, and then at the end where it's like, you know, there's hand claps and there's, come on. Now, come on! It kind of, kind of climaxes at the end there. Yeah. It's uh, the the song, song goes in a few different places. You just that Mick Ronson got a good thing going on, and you know, yep. just that back and forth between Bowie and Mick Ronson's guitar work is very pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah. No, they really know. They're really this, this album. The uh, spoilers, everyone. This is a great rock and roll record, and. This track right here is a perfect example of just rock and roll at the height of its power. If you were to maybe uh, squint, this could be a Chuck Berry song. We'll talk about him a little bit more. Um, and I don't want to cloud the great rocking of this album with... I, I get into the storyline. People that listen to our first season, they know that. Um, Eric Heads, if you will. <laughs> Eric, I'm not Eric. I'm not trying to dissuade you. It, fucking, This is a concept album. I expect it. It's fine. I, I, but I appreciate the music the whole time. Like that's the great thing about it is it tells a story and then you can get distracted and took me probably 10 listens in the last two weeks because I was like, this time I'm just focusing on the lyrics. This time I'm just focusing on the music because there's, there's, it's so robust with each. Well, to that young man, the title track is the next song and I'm sure there's many things you can tell us about the storyline of Ziggy Stardust. Now Ziggy played guitar, jamming good with Weird and Gilly, and the 
He's got a lot of iconic songs. He's probably got 20 iconic songs, but this would be on that, like, you hear the first two chords, and, uh, you know, it, 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 it paints a picture of classic Bowie track. Um, classic rock track. I mean, this is a... This is... This song is up there with Led Zeppelin for me, where when I... Many Led Zeppelin songs, who I adore, when I first hear them, I'm like, oh, God, am I really gonna... Am I in the mood again for Black Dog? And then half the song, half thirty yeah. seconds in, I'm into it. That same thing yeah, happens. You know, to me yeah. with this song. So and the, yeah, and it's um, why don't you why don't you speak on the music a little bit on this one, Steve? I feel like you you've got the uh, or or Mark. Either of you two seem to have the uh, seem to have the gift with that on this track. I got a lot to say about the lyrics, but I I, I want to set the stage because this song has a great sound. It's very guitar driven. One of the more guitar driven songs in the album. Yeah, I mean musically. I mean, okay, so I won't try to steal any of your thunder there, Eric, but I do find it, it's kind of interesting that this is the title track of the, uh, for the album. It's also about the main character, but it's done from the perspective of people from his own band. They're looking at Ziggy Stardust, and they're actually getting like, you know, fuck this guy. You know, should we break his goddamn hands? Because he's getting a little too big for his (laughs) britches, and we're just getting pushed into the periphery. Why they why the fly tried to break our balls, but I think uh, it's not necessarily talking about themselves. Well, I guess it kind of was like, hey man, where were we when? Uh, I, and he was the fly in that situation, in that metaphor. I, I would imagine um, just the beer light to guide us. So we bitched about his fans and should we crush his sweet hands? I mean that guitar riff I mean it is just you you could play that to a 90 year old lady and she'd probably be like that's David Bowie no and and it was just how did they they nailed it so hard though it it fits so perfectly and the way it just uh, when when the song first starts they have that iconic lick and then the way the we haven't talked a lot about how some of the vocal effects they do they do good phasing work on this record the way the ooh yeah that yeah. kind of just slides in yeah. and then the drum yeah. and then the, then the drum roll behind it it's 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 perfect ah and then the guitar riff comes back mm-hmm. it's perfect start yeah i mean this song is iconic for a reason um, i'm sure immediately when it hit the radios. People are like, you know, fell out of their chairs. Wake the neighbors. Wake the kids. You know, that sort of thing. Like, um, And, you know, it's one of the things that it's it's interesting because I'm not a big lyric guy, but this is one of the, the songs that the lyrics have always stuck with me as much as the music. Yeah. You know? Well, that that's one thing I like about this record is that um, I've been listening to it for the podcast and... I was giving Towns a bath a few days ago, and I, I, I was listening to it together with him. And I realized I could sing this entire album out loud. I know all the words to this album, the whole thing, the whole the whole goddamn thing. And of course, I'm sure Steve likes the fact that there's a straight line between a lyric to one of his favorite rock and roll bands of all time, and the mention of Leopard Messiah comes up in this <laughs> song, which Metallica. we all know absolutely on yes. the album Master of Puppets.
which will be season four, um, <laughs> which we'll get to when we're pushing 50. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, and it just like the, it goes back to the production on this album. You can hear every word delivered crisply. And you don't get that on uh, every David Al- David Bowie album. You do on this one, though. And on this track specifically. I think they, they enunciate very well. Uh, it's, it's a great, great goddamn song. The one thing I want to add to it, Mark already covered most of it. And the two things that are just uh, from the guitar corner is the weird and gilly and the spiders from Mars. When he says that, there's this little guitar twang. You guys know that little sound of that yeah. little... Yeah, that that little flourish. Weird, weird and Gilly is uh, Trevor and Woody during the Where Were the Spiders section. The that riff, the da 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 dunt, da 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 dunt, ba da ba da ba da ba da. You can't. You can put that riff in a box and set it aside in a time capsule. And one day, when the apes finally do take over the planet, they'll find it and they'll understand what we meant when we said rock and roll is good. So if Weird and Gilly were Trevor and Mick, Trevor, right? Trevor and Woody. Okay, so this is apparently from Mick's point of view. Uh, I could see that. That would make sense because he doesn't mention himself totally. Uh, yeah. But I think he's. I think okay. he's. I think he's on the side of, of Weird and Gilly for sure. But um, there. Yeah, you mentioned everything about what the song's about and the perspective of it being from somebody in the band um, and how they're feeling when he starts letting fame corrupt him. Um, I think at this point the the benevolent alien has been sucked into his mind and, and buried deep under his greed and lust uh, that comes from fame. Um, the one line, and I'm not gonna you got you talked about all my favorite lines in this. The one line at the end that I that I'm still mulling over is um, uh, when uh, when, uh, when they killed the man, we had to break up the band. And like, well, who's the man? Like, you know what I mean? Like, who did they kill? Was it metaphorically speaking, like they killed, you know, whoever Ziggy was before he was Ziggy? Is it, is it, um, they literally like, Bowie has said like later, like, yeah, I wrote, actually wrote the album after <laughs> it was recorded, like the storyline. And yeah, you can assume his fans kill him. Um, and there's some lines in the final, the closer track that make you, that make you see that. So I wonder if he's talking about that here, that his fans, that is, they're talking, they're like foreshadowing that his fans are going to kill him here. Um, it's just a weird line or, or did he have his fans like, you know, are his fans so crazy, uh, that they just killed some random person for him, uh, which did happen at rock shows on rare occasion back in the day. Um, so I, I kind of wonder exactly what that's aligned to and, it, and I don't have an answer, but, um, just a, those are the few, three places my brain went on that one thing we may have mentioned when we were talking about the inspiration for, uh, David Bowie writing this record, but I never had heard of Vince Taylor, um, and Vince Taylor apparently was a big inspiration for David Bowie uh, creating this character of Ziggy Stardust. Uh, I guess David Bowie met Vince Taylor in the 1960s. Um, he had Bowie mentioned in a 1990 interview that he always stayed in my mind as, as an example of what can happen in rock and roll. Um, Bowie had said, I'm not sure if I held him up as an idol or as something not to become, uh, because apparently he was popular as one of the most famous figures in rock and roll, but he ruined his life and career because of drugs. Um, but I, I, for, I can't, I don't know who Vince Taylor is. Maybe there's, I've heard some of his songs and I didn't 
prepare myself before press time here, but have either one of you ever heard of Vince Taylor? Yeah, no. But I do have to say, I mean, we, we haven't been talking much about that, but the storyline in this, the overall storyline of this thing, be it aliens or just being a rock star, is about the power of rock and roll and the power that somebody might have over an audience. And so that does make sense to me. And also we didn't touch on it much, but the end of this album definitely did influence somebody else trying to do something similar. And I know there's probably a couple albums out there. I think actually there's shades of a, even though they didn't talk about each other that much, shades of Ziggy Stardust ended up in the wall. If you ask me. Oh my God. That, you know what? I think, uh, subliminally, um, I, yeah, cause guess what I listened to today? Listen to the wall. And I hadn't listened to that album in years. And I was like, I'm kind of in the mood for the wall. Well, I hate to tell you, Mark, but it's a, it's a good record. Uh, <laughs> but also one we've talked about, on, I can, I can see that. I could absolutely see the that. one we've talked about on the show about a rock star and like the power of rock and roll taking over the audience, maybe taking over the rock star is obviously antichrist superstar. And I think that Ziggy Stardust, when when Marilyn Manson sat down, Brian Warner and the boys, Ziggy Stardust is that there is no way in hell when they were making that record with Trent Reznor, they didn't say, okay, the title track off Antichrist Superstar is basically our Ziggy Stardust, and then 1996 is going to be our Suffragette City, and you know, I'm thinking that uh, Man That You Fear, that's kind of our rock and roll suicide. So the, la- the the end of this album definitely, I think, reflects the end of Antichrist Superstar. Or they reflected the end of this album. Am I making sense here? Yeah, I could see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and, and coming in late to the game on Antichrist Superstar and actually having had this more in my repertoire before I listened to that, um, I kind of made, like, I was making those connections and I was listening to it. And, and not in a, like, a not in a ripoff way at all. It was just like a really good example of somebody being inspired by a body of work and doing it in their own way. Because how would Marilyn Manson do, you know, I know you weren't saying that I'm just saying how would Marilyn Manson be inspired to tell like that, that story of a, of a rock and roll star that gets corrupted. And I don't know really what his story is about. Like he comes like a serial killer or something. I have no idea, but that's very much Marilyn Manson's brand on top of a Ziggy Stardust storyline, a, a, a rise and fall. Two things. Kind of thing. One, he never becomes a serial killer, as far as I can tell. <laughs> I, I just, I, 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 yeah, I don't know. And, I, and two, the story of a, a, a prophecy of writing a rock and roll record and talking about the breaking up of the band uh, that happens in Ziggy Stardust. Definitely, I'm sure that uh, Marilyn Manson would have said they were doing something similar. They wouldn't try to hide that. It's right there, you know? said anyhow good stuff so that does get us to uh so we're now we're in the home stretch of this this album and uh we're going now into a song that has been also covered by many we'll get into the covers when we are uh, doing our our post-mortem at the end here uh suffragette city Yeah, this song is proto punk with the bullet. Um, it 
is like uh, unrelenting in its pace, um, but it does have uh, quite quite good dynamics. Um, he's got swagger to his vocals, um, and it's got this cool "Hey man, na 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 na," and uh, "Hey man," and it, and it just immediately you know where it's going, and then it still surprises you. That call that that call and response. I'm a call yeah. and response whore, and that call yeah. that call and response is one of my favorite call and responses. I just I can't deny it. And this song is ridiculous. This is this is like a this is like a BBC sitcom plot where it's like a guy and his roommate, and the guy wants to get a girl over, and his roommate wants to like hang out, and he's like, "No, dude, just 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 chill for a minute, okay? I'm I'm having somebody over," and then the girl and, and herself is an interesting character, and um, uh, she's a uh, mellow thighed, which means uh, he's probably gonna bang. So uh, that's <laughs> anyways. And, and well, he's I all about it. And his friend keeps he, getting. He in the says, way. "This mellow fat chick put my spine out of place." It's this mellow thighed, mellow thighed chick. I always thought it. I for a while there, I thought it, I thought he was saying the smell of fat chicks, <laughs> which is. <laughs> I've always heard it differently. Okay, well, <laughs> yeah, it's the mellow thighed chicks is putting my spine yeah, out of uh, place. Either way, you know, we we all would have signed up for it. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I do agree. I think this is a glam rock song done right. Um, I, I apparently David Bowie offered it to Mott the Hoople before he recorded it himself, and apparently, I think it was around the time that Mott the Hoople was about to break up, and he was hoping that this song would potentially keep them together. Um, but I'm glad that you know uh, we'll talk about Mott the Hoople in just a second here. But um, my favorite standout lyrics are the total blam blam, and of course the ooh wham bam thank you ma'am. I mean it shouldn't yeah. work because it's kind of a silly cheesy lyric but the way that Bowie sells it um, just seems to work the for way me. he sells it and also let's all remember that in a corner of all of this is some kind of cabaret type showmanship stuff going on but you know what you know why it works for me is because it has that little Richard tutti frutti piano thing oh, going on totally, in the I was gonna say little Richard yeah, yeah. I was actually gonna say that this song had definitely has a little Richard uh, piano thing going on which, uh, if listeners will listen to our episode from last week about glam rock, we do talk about Little Richard, so that makes sense. And now, a Little Richard Minute with David Bowen. I sent away for a photograph of Little Richard when I was seven years old. It was called Star Pick, and it took eight weeks to arrive. When it arrived, it was torn. And uh, I was absolutely brokenhearted. The first record I think I bought was called I Got It which he later rewrote as She's Got It. And uh, ever since I saw that photograph of me, I realized he had so many saxophones in his band. So I went out and bought a saxophone, intending that when I grew up, I'd work in the Little Richard Band as one of his saxophones. Anyway, it didn't work out like that. But without him, I think myself and half of my contemporaries wouldn't be playing music. And uh, it's unbelievable that he doesn't have a band. Hi, I'm Tom Kenny. This is Friday Night Videos. This is Little Richard, and we are out for justice. You That's hear me? right. Justice! That's right. We got to get this man a Grammy. We got to get him a, a record label. We got to get him a record deal. That's Voice right. your support. Call the number on your screen. Read it for him one more time. You got to call me. You call this number on the screen. Listen, call it now. 
1-800-645-3335. Send your letters to Give Little Richard His Due. Give Little Richard His Due. P.O. Box 4681. New York, New York, 10185. Drop it in the mail. This man deserves better, folks. This man is a national treasure. That's right. He just needs more than we're giving him. He deserves more than we're giving him. Why I'm still alive. Why the blood's still running warm in my veins. That's right. It is, too. Your hand is warm. Look what they did for Villa Vanilli. Millie Vanilli. He got a Grammy. Look what they did for Grammy. They gave them a Grammy and they can't even sing. They can't even They can't even talk. Yeah, and if there's anything this man can do, it's sing and talk. That's right. me. All the time. Never stop. And they gave them a Grammy. And give me that one that you gave them. And... Yes, the Wham Bam, thank you, ma'am, definitely is a little Richard-esque bit of a camp, if you will. And camp is a big cornerstone on uh, what David Bowie was looking towards and Lou Reed leans into a bit on Transformer. It all all works, man. This song in itself obviously was written before. It was written for another band entirely. It doesn't fit into the storyline, but it's all in the sequencing, right? So this song is all about debauchery. And, you know, one could even say like, yeah, he's hit rock bottom and now he's totally controlled uh, by sex by a woman. And uh, that's kind of where he's at, which following, you know, the um, the last two tracks and, and following his his fall down to rock bottom is this it, this this kind of gritty world makes sense uh, where it's placed on the album. Was that intended for that originally? No, of course not. But the sequencing really kind of fills in that gap with a, a little bit of the story that that paints a paints a picture to his uh, his fall, which I which which I'm fine with. So what you're saying is this is like his big night out before the end of everything. I was gonna say it's now at this point he's basically like given into his vices completely. Um, and, and one of them being, Oh, that's, that's one of your and, favorite um, topics out of like every other nine snails album. So that makes sense. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I'm going for a laugh. There, and the only man. other thing that I wanted to mention that I do appreciate, the only other thing <laughs> that I wanted to mention was there is a clockwork orange reference in here as well. Uh, with the word droogy being used, which was that NASDAQ, uh, language that he also used later on black star. Oh, girl loves me. That's right. Yeah. 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 All right. Cool. Uh, I, I think it's a great song. I think it's a real highlight as far as I'm concerned. He doesn't have a lot of songs that sound like this. And uh, I, he almost, I mean, you could trace back that entire genre of music to maybe this and a couple other songs. So. Yeah, no, I, I'd say that yeah, I'd say that the punk mu- movement, they all must have been Ziggy Stardust fans. Between like three tracks on this album, they got a good cornerstone of their sound. And this is one of them. Right. Absolutely. So let's go to the closing track, which is Rock and Roll Suicide. Then cigarette. The water wall is calling. It lingers, then you forget. Oh, 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 oh. You're a rock and roll suicide You're too old to lose it Too young to choose it And the clock waits so patiently on your song And that was Rock and Roll Suicide. Um, it's, I think it's an excellent closer to um, 
a near perfect album. Uh, the imagery is really quite something in this song. Uh, it seems like a wasteland one's walking through alone. Uh, but a reminder that time is a companion. And it, his next record, which is Aladdin Sane, uh, sort of picks up that, that motif a little bit with the, the song Time. We haven't got there yet, but we'll talk about there. Um, and it's been said that this details Ziggy's final collapse as an old washed-up rock star, and as such was also the closing number for a lot of the Ziggy Stardust live shows. And, you know, narratively speaking, I would be interested to hear if, you know, at the beginning of the, the album it says we've got five years to live in. Um, so what happened? Like, I wanted to know if, like, the Earth did end or this character of Starman speaking through Ziggy actually saved the world. So I don't know. Like, uh, what do you guys think? I had uh, I had kind of an opinion on that. Um, I didn't get so much that it's that it's that he's old and washed up, just that he hit bottom for a while, and then he kind of gets up on stage and and uh, made a lot of bad decisions and kind of failed the the alien's mission. But at the end, the alien asked to come back out and and to grab their hands, uh, and in that one moment, kind of maybe maybe that's I don't know. I, I think he. I think it's safe to say, uh, obviously the the world didn't end, <laughs> but um, I, I feel like in the end it's a moment of hope when uh, he finally dies. The alien can can grab their hands and 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 maybe inspire them one last time. Yeah. It's a pretty badass death, so that's kind of where that's where my mind went. That like yeah, he's washed up, but in in in, in one last moment uh, as he dies on stage, he's able to inspire one last time. So that's what I like to think. Yeah. But I like a happy ending. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's a great song. I don't know if it's a space alien or if it's a, a rock star, or if it's both, maybe it is both. That's the whole point of this, this damn record. But I do know it's a great closer to the record. And, um, the way it starts with that, uh, uh how do you, how do you describe that guitar tone that you kind of get from, um, modest mouses? Was it sleepwalking Eric? Right. So you're, yeah, it's a very reverby. Reverby. It's just like a re, it, yeah, it's like a reverby, almost doo wop kind of thing. Yeah, and they're definitely, re- at, at some moments, it's, uh, it sounds like creep by Radiohead. They're reaching yeah. back to the 50s with that. And I think yeah. it works perfectly for this album that talks, there's touches of Chuck Berry in this record. There's, this album is kind of about rock and roll. It's perfect to have a, a sleepy rock and roll, uh, romanticism song close it out. And, um, the, the 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 lines, the time takes a cigarette and puts it in your mouth. Pull on your finger and then another finger, then another sing, cigarette. And then what is it? The the wall to wall is winding. Um, it's calling. It lingers. Then you forget. Oh, yeah. you're a rock and roll suicide. And then just the thumping drum. It is just beautiful. And then you know it it goes through one more cycle of that, and then it, the, the 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 horns come in, I believe. And I think it is such a masterful closing track. I think if you were to be a a Frankie Sharp from Sharp Records and you were going through the sequencing of an album with your band, you would say, hey, by the way, you need to close with something like this if you really want to stick with somebody for years. Because much like five years, 
I remember the first time I heard Five Years. I don't really remember the first time I heard every other track on this album. But the first time I hold it was probably later that night. Let's be realistic here. But Rock and Roll Suicide, whenever I hear it, I get taken back to the first time I heard it every time. It's just the, the first time I heard the Oh No Love, You're Not Alone, I the, you snap to attention. You can't believe that you sound, even though that when I first heard this album, it was recorded 30 something years earlier, probably. I felt like he was speaking directly to me. And you you can't buy that. You can't. There's there's. There, there's no way you can plan that. I, I think that only happens when uh, the magic of perfect musicianship and personality happens, when a listener feels like the artist is speaking directly to them. And they definitely nail it with this track. And it's a great closing yeah. track. I love, I love it. So one other interesting little tidbit. Uh, David was married to Angela at this time, Duncan Jones's mother. Um, and she was apparently credited with coming up with the Give Me Your Hands outro of the song. And she was asked about that in 2000, and she said this, that Rock and Roll Suicide spoke to me personally. It was my personal anthem for everyone everywhere who had endured the humiliation of growing up with stupidity, and I am that all-embracing in my interpretation. Uh, that's the incredible thing about David's music. Here we are, 30 years on, still discussing a solo, a chorus, the meaning of the words... Rock and Roll Suicide has the positive affirmative, you're wonderful, and give me your hands, you're not alone refrain, that I could hear as I walked into a restaurant or jumped up in the morning. And so it's kind of interesting, the, you know, that. <laughs> hear, yeah, hear her say something positive, though. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Uh, and I do know that he was inspired by some, like, James Brown with the, he, like, he was trying to figure out how to, basically uh boil down that that rousing like get the audience involved moment into one little line at the very end of the last you know the last verse and i think it's great well i i mean we all love live music a little bit less as we get older i was kind of bummed out that yesterday i couldn't go down to the melvin show it was going to be my uh consolation prize for not going to the king crimson show that i missed out on in oakland either way my point is i still like to go see a show now and then and the way that they sure. say, give me your hands, it, it it does make you just, that's the reason we all go to the rock shows, man. I mean, there's a reason for that. Right. There's a, that connection of someone playing something that your ears love and trying to transfer it to you is the whole point of the goddamn thing. And he sums it up very well here. It's a great song. Yeah. Great closer. All right. So do we want to... Do I want to do our boltings? Yeah, um, we're gonna. We got a ways to go before we can hang up the phone on each other, but we can, we can rate this out al- this album now before we get into the uh, bonus tracks, and then we're gonna talk some Mata Hoople. We're gonna talk some Lou Reed, and specifically, we'll talk about Mata Hoople, Lou Reed, the cover songs, and a little other oddities next week in part two of this era of David Bowie discussion. Now let's hear what beat reporter Lennox Anderson has to say about it. Hey Lennox, what'd you think about Ziggy Stardust, The Rise and Fall? I think that the story was really good. I think that the Ziggy Stardust story was way better than the Arnold Corns story. <laughs> there was a story there? Okay. All right, now what's your uh, favorite song? My favorite song on it is Starman. And what's your least favorite song? My least favorite song on there is It Ain't Easy. 
Mm. Interesting. And uh, how many bolts? I would give it five out of five bolts. Ah, so you think this is one of the most important Bowie albums? Yes. What would you have liked to have seen him play this in concert, this whole album? Yes, I want to see. I would want to see this whole album in concert. Good. Um, do you think you're about ready to dress up like Ziggy Stardust and go to school on Monday? Because we're going to do it. We're going to force you to. You have no choice. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as far as this album goes, I will start. I I thought about it. I was going to give it a 4.5. But then I said, no, no, you know. At the end of the day, if something sticks to your ribs this well, it's probably a perfect record, even though it might be imperfect. So I give it a five out of five. That's me. I give it a, I, I, I'm going to be cowardly here. I'll give it the 4.5 out of five. I think I'm not as elated with it as I am with Scary Monsters, which I gave the perfect five out to. But that being said, uh, Five Years is a five out of five song. That's uh, that's among his best his best tracks of all time, and it still stirs me like no other. Um, I think uh, it ain't easy. Maybe could have been replaced. Maybe Star could have been replaced with maybe even some of these these cutout songs, and it, it might have bumped it up slightly. But it's an amazing album. Well, part of part of my thing, Eric, is that I, I'm not going to argue with you, but I, I just I I, I think that. Um, even though, yeah, the, the points you just made are valid, but the crater that the meteor of Ziggy Stardust left still was so big, you can't deny it. And I mean, I, it's true. And, and it's like, true. I've got, um, I brought up my cousin before on this podcast. My cousin, his wife, and their kids, they are all David Bowie super fans. And like, when they have their first day of school each year, like, the kids wear David Bowie shirts. And Ed, I'm just bringing that up because a lot of that iconography and those songs that probably are the ones that are a lot of people's favorites stem from this album. This was the yeah. this was the hook that got a lot of people uh, snagged onto Bowie life, and that's what makes me give it a five. Um, so I understand both of your points. Um, I think that it is a uh, a cultural touchstone for a lot of people personally and for even Bowie's own career. But my own personal rating of this is different from others. Uh, I would give it also a 4.5. I don't think it's a perfect record. It is damn close. Um, I don't even... It's definitely probably in my top five David Bowie albums, but we'll probably do that at the very end, our little roundup when we're all said and done. Um, But, you know, I, I... I look at Scary Monsters as something that I'm just so attached to. I even prefer Station to Station over this one. Um, even though Station to Station if you, is not necessarily as important of a record as this one is, if you kind of look at it from a cultural perspective and a pop cultural perspective at least. But for my own personal rating, that's where it lands a 4.5 for me. Yeah, I think, I think that's what I'm saying is like... Uh... Musically and sound-wise, um, some of those other albums, like you're mentioning, uh, kind of speak to my sensibilities a little bit more. But there's no denying the importance of this album. No, and I actually agree with both of you. And that's, I think I'm just being a little bit uh, more romantic about it. Because when I listened to it for this uh, project, 
I was taken aback, like I mentioned before, some of the songs took me back to specific moments in my life, and I wasn't prepared for that much. And that carries a lot of weight with me. Um, totally. You know, yep. So, That's undeniable. Yeah. I, I, I totally understand your perspective on that. Yep. But no, it's still, like, if I were to rank them, like, in order, you know, Scary Monsters and Station to Station and other ones might come above it. But uh, for what we're doing, I was just surprised by, like, I, I, I think I texted you guys. I've always known this is a good album, but it reminded me. I was like, oh, there's there's a reason that when uh, VH1 does the top 25 rock albums of all time, this is probably in there. Uh, it better, yeah. it better be. God damn it! <laughs> so, oh, absolutely, absolutely. It was a lot. Of, it was a lot of fun yeah. to revisit. Yeah. You, you talking about your cousin reminded me somewhere. There's a music video of my kids singing uh, "Suffragette City," <laughs> not knowing how inappropriate it was at the time. Uh, I'll find. I'll, I'll, I'll dig that one up for the uh, for the uh, Facebook followers. And that is all for this episode of Pod Like a Hole. Come back next week where we discuss Lou Reed and his Transformers. Mop the Hoople, and all their young dudes. Some covers from this era, as well as a look at the Santa Monica album, quickly. We will not be covering the Ziggy Stardust motion picture soundtrack, because I think that deserves its own episode, along with watching the movie. In the meantime, rest in peace, Rick Ocasek. Let the soul